Hey guys, before we kick off this week's episode, I just wanted to touch base with everyone and let you all know that my colleague and co-host Sean will be taking a brief hiatus from the podcast effective immediately. He's fine, don't worry. Life just happens and it happens to the best of us. Uh, But whenever he's ready to come back to the show, he knows he's always welcome and that film effect is his home. In the meantime, I'm doing some tweaks to our schedule and getting some co-hosts together for a couple of uh, upcoming episodes. Really, it's nothing I can't handle. Uh, The show must go on, as they say, and so the Film Effect podcast will continue moving ahead as planned. So here's to Sean returning sooner than later, and until then, let's hit that fitting music button for an episode of this caliber in three, two, go. Welcome to the Film Effect Podcast, where we take all things film to the full effect. My name's Ed, and joining me this week, guys, I got a very special guest host for you. Best film ever. We got Ian on the show. I was able to nab him. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing very well, and thanks for having me on. This has been this has been a little bit in the making, but I'm glad we've gotten around to it. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, we were talking before the recording about like this little community we have going, and, and you know, I've I, I mean every word of this. Like I've always looked at you guys as like the top dogs. You know? Oh, bless you. I really do look at you guys that way. So this is very like this means a lot that you are joining me for this. You know. So thanks for that again. You charmer, you. <laughs> I try, I try. Uh, but before we get into the nitty gritty, I want to let you guys know that our ever growing collection of previous episodes can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Google, iHeartRadio, Pocket Cast, and wherever else you enjoy your favorite shows. Check out our brand new website at podpage.com slash the-film-effect-podcast. There you can access everything Film Effect related all in one place, including all of our backlog of episodes, including the direct link to our merch and other neat things. Uh, We're on Facebook and Instagram without accessing the site. Uh, The tag on those is the Film Effect Podcast, and you can find us on Twitter at Film Effect Pod. And if you're old-fashioned and want to send us an email, our email address is thefilmeffectpodcast at gmail.com. Let's do some shout-outs. Shout-out to his family. All right, so I got a few. Um, Backlook Cinema Podcast, who covered Backdraft last week, and I'm actually going to be a special guest on their show next month. Uh, we're kicking around a couple potential films, but I uh, don't want to let the cat out of the bag just yet. So I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, joining the show for once myself, uh, much like you, Ian. It's it's a totally different side of the coin, I got to tell you. Uh, I'm, I'm curious. I'm, 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 I'm excited. It's supposed to be, I, I think he said July 16th was the date where we're doing well, it. It's actually in a couple of weeks. Actually. Well, I, I think your role on your show, similar to my role on, on my show, where we both kind of, I think we're both kind of driving the bus. 
so to yes. speak. If, yes. if this is speed, we are Annie with with, with the wheel yep. in, in our hands, and Keanu Reeves has to trust us that we know where we're going. And so exactly. it, beco- it becomes difficult to sort of just be, you know, on the other side of that and and just be in the more of a, a, a just just wait to be sort of thrown to or called to or just it's a different dynamic. It is fun. It is fun. It's a different energy. So I think you'll cool. really really enjoy getting out there. Uh, I'm excited. Um, your next favorite movie for all the recent support and a reminder that Josh just recently wrapped up their crow retro with wicked prayer. That's now available. Ian, where are you at on the crow wicked prayer? The crow, I see. I know nothing about the crow. Uh, we did an episode. Liam picked one last year as his wild card. And we did the crow. And so I sat through it. And went, I understand why this had an appeal. Uh, it's the kind of film I should have seen. I was the right age for it. I don't know how I didn't. Right. But that's the only one. I didn't dive into the crow catalog afterwards and go ahead and see that. But your next favorite movie. I got a guest spot on your next favorite movie coming up. I'm actually recording that tomorrow of all things. Really? It's not coming out till like September, but we're recording it. <laughs> Nice. Uh, I'm recording one. I think Liam's also recording one. I think we're going back to back. We're going to do one each. So that'll be uh, a fun time. I really dig the, the stuff at your next favorite movie. Yeah, me too. Uh, uh, Josh, there's a good guy. I just discovered them a couple weeks ago, but uh, I, I've liked what I've heard so far. So definitely. They are fantastic. Looking forward to that episode. And um, best film ever for all the love and support. And for Ian agreeing to join me for this special episode, <laughs> check out their just released breakdown of Tom Cruise's career and overall top 10 films list. I know my list helped collateral take the number one spot for the BFE audiences. Top 10. Yeah. I'll tell you what it's not. When we go to the, the audience role poll and then we get to our poll, usually I put more stock in ours. This time I think I got to put more stock. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not, I'm not a collateral fan, but when I look at the movies that kind of where some of the big ones situated on, on, on our list i was like oh this is just a little maybe his career is too extensive that we couldn't get the crew to all come together and watch the same films i'd seen almost the whole filmography of, of, of the bloke but i think uh, some of our younger members were struggling uh, to get too far beyond the mission impossible franchise in places and finally everyone who listened to our phantom thread episode last week you guys helped to become our most successful episode in terms of first week numbers Still pretty blown away about that episode's re- uh, reception, as I didn't fully expect it to take off the way it did. I guess more people are fans of PTA than I expected. Uh, are you familiar with Paul Thomas Anderson's career? Oh, Paul Thomas Anderson. He's one of those quirky. I'm trying to think. Is he the guy? I could get this totally wrong. What has he done? He, has he done? Boogie Nights. Oh, uh, Boogie Magnolia. Nights. I just watched Magnolia for a Tom Cruise thing. Didn't get it didn't get it it's you either love that movie or you hate it you do and i was i kept thinking it was building to something and i I, my argument is that it doesn't i feel it's underwhelming uh, yeah, although although Tom Cruise is brilliant in it, absolutely brilliant in it. Yes, uh, the, the guy was robbed of an Oscar in that film. I agree with everything you said on the podcast. <laughs> is he the guy who did adaptation as well? No, that was uh, Charlie Kaufman. Oh, that's Charlie Kaufman. See, I, I tend to get them a little bit mixed up. But Boogie Nights, yeah. really like Boogie Nights. Was, everyone's got that one thing that makes them special. Yeah, I Boogie Nights yeah. is great. And then he did uh, Punch Drunk Love with Adam Sandler. Have um, never seen that. It's my favorite film of his career. Really? It's always one I've wanted to see. And I, I think my ma- and, and, and my co-host Sean doesn't get it. We actually brought it up on the lot on the this episode for Pam Thread. And like they, they don't get it. I love it. It's like their <sighs> worst film of uh PTA's career. Wow. It's okay. my favorite. It's 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 a nice it's, it's hard to put it in the terms. It's Adam Sandler doing something so wonderful. 
impactful. It's it really like I said on the episode last week. I always watch that movie and come out of it in a good mood. Like it's it's really uplifting and it's weird. It's quirky, but it's so good. It's like a, a quirky love story. Let's just call it that. You know, I I always like it when Sandler's brave enough. Uh, to try something yeah. outside of his usual shtick, doesn't always land. Did you see Uncut but, Gems? But I like. I have not again, another one. See, I'm very anti Adam Sandler in general because it's the same movie over and over and over again. I mean, I, I did a whole rant. Yeah, you got to see Uncut Gems. Uh, Ethan tells me that, uh, so it's definitely something that's that and Punch Drunk Love are two of the ones on my list to sort of go yes. ahead and and give a shout to because um, he was such a bankable formula for so long (laughs) that I I think he'd be struggling to call what he's doing art at that point. So I do like the the idea that he's stretched out and trying other things. And um, generally when he does, I'm a fan. I just need to go ahead and find the bravery in myself to try try the film. (laughs) (laughs) I got it. No problem. Um, So yeah, and then more recently, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson did uh, There Will Be Blood, also with Daniel Day-Lewis. He did a weird kind of like a noir comedy um, called Inherent Vice with Joaquin Phoenix. It came out about five, six years ago. Man, this is hitting Um, all my blind spots. It's okay. Yeah, it's just weird. And then this one, uh, Paul, Phantom Thread. And then he's got like a like a kind of a dazed and confused-esque teenage uplifting story coming out this fall that my buddy justin who was on the show thinks it's going to be something different but you know we'll see i'm I'm curious about it that one's got bradley cooper and a bunch of other people it's it's your typical paul thomas anderson cast excellent but yeah. uh i should current events so i'm saving the halloween kills talk for our halloween five episode that's coming soon but i want to talk about sp- Spielberg shooting down Jaws remake pitches that I feel like this story has been on everything, everywhere that I've been like, you know, all the, the news sites that I go to and Twitter and, you know, social media in general. I feel like a lot of people have been talking about this stupid story about, you know, Spielberg and these Jaws remakes that apparently Universal is trying to get out of the water. No pun intended. And uh, <laughs> he's just shooting this shit down. And, uh, I guess he's got a lot of leeway. I mean, we talked before the recording. You're not too keen on Joss, but you, you know, like we both said, you agreed on. You got to watch it again and see how you feel more with it, more like a more modern take or more modern viewing. Yeah, it's definitely something we'll 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 do on our pod at some point. I mean, we'd we'd be foolish not to. I thought you guys did for some reason. Yeah, no, it's just one of those ones that keeps, pardon the pun, floating around um, (laughs) that we haven't got got around to taking a bite out of. But. I, I, I applaud Spiel. I've, I've got I've got such fa- uh, reboot fatigue, more so than even sequel fatigue. I have reboot fatigue. Mm-hmm. I'm like, so I'm I applaud. With you on that. I applaud Steven Spielberg. I applaud people like Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale with Back to the Future, who just mm-hmm. draw that line in the sand and go, "No, we're not going to do it." Because if you name the list of legitimate reboots, legitimate reboots. Like not films that were you know made in a foreign language and that we've got an English version thereof, but I mean things that we're familiar with, and then went ahead and said let's restart it again. The list of really good ones you can probably count on one hand. Yeah, I agree. You know with that. I mean, like you, you got Star Trek, and then I'm kind of going, eh, you know, 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I really think um, every they, every iteration of a dime a dozen, like Batman, I guess the Christopher Nolan trilogy of it, and and yeah, yeah but that series reboots itself every like decade or so. Yeah, yeah. Will, will, will I go see the Batman? Of course, I'll go see the see, see the. See yeah, the me too. That, that'll happen. Of course, it will. But right. I think I think comic books lend themselves to that sort of of storytelling. Where you go, it's not about the actor or the individual story. It's about the costume and the colors and taking them to, to different places. Um, right. Yeah, whereas like Jaws is just like, let's just redo the story. Like, it didn't work for The Karate Kid. It didn't work for Point Break. It didn't work for uh, Independence Day. Well, it's, it's not really a reboot. But it, it doesn't work for any of these sort of things that are going, let's cash in on the nostalgia with this giant reboot process and, and collect all the money. And generally, they've been underwhelming. I mean, they're going to do Ghostbusters again. I'm about it i mean in that I, film's I defense it's more of a sequel than what the yeah. 2016 version was yeah, i'm kind of like i did not care for the 2016. No, oh, i wasn't because, a fan not because of the casting i've got no issue with but neither this, this is how it works this is how feminism works a group mm -hmm. of women are just as capable of making a crap film as a bunch of men and that's exactly what happened that day <laughs> got that right <laughs> um yeah um I, I have to really sit down and think about you know uh, as far as remakes and you know ones that are better and, and whatnot but like, like like i said they're they're everywhere would it make a bunch of money yes is spielberg hurting for money no is there a chance you see that and you think of the original and go oh, i really wish they hadn't gone for that extra you know granted i don't think of point break and think oh but the crap the crap um sequel i don't or, or reboot i don't do it with karate kid i don't do it with these other films but there's always that danger of it you tarnish the legacy when you put something you put that same brand name on a subpar product because all we're going to do is compare it to the original. And the original, for everybody else who's not me, seems to be fantastic. So why would you go down that road? And some are forgettable. I totally forgot there was a Karate Kid remake. Completely yeah, forgot exactly, about exactly, that. Exactly, right? Jack, Jackie Chan, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, J Jackie Chan. And was it was it, was it Will Smith's kid? I think Will it was Will Smith's, Smith's kid. kid. Willow, Willow Smith, I think, or Jaden. Jaden, I think it was Jaden. Like, mm -hmm. I totally forgot just now. I was going through it. Total Recall did their reboot. I walked onto the set of it in Toronto oh, that's by, by right. mistake. <laughs> they were filming in Toronto and I walked on to the Oh, set. really? Yeah. And, but like, does anybody Ow. remember that? I mean, Colin Farrell, but did I ever see it? No. Will I ever go see it? No. <laughs> I, I, no, I, I don't exactly. I, that's a terrible film. Him and yeah. Brian Cranston. Yeah, I remember that now. <laughs> um, yeah, forgettable. Sheesh. Yeah. So, so props to you. A raise of the coffee glass from my side of the Atlantic to Steven Spielberg for saying no. There you go. All right. So let's talk about the film of the week. Um, and I just realized I didn't have a little witty intro prepared, so we're doing Hateful Eight. And what make a man brave a blizzard kill in cold blood? I'm sure I don't know. You'd be surprised what a man would do. <laughs> Starting to see pictures, ain't you? Got room for one more? I ain't too anxious to be handing out rides. Real trusting fella, huh? Not so much. Ain't no way I'm spending a couple of nights under a roof with somebody I don't know who they are. So who are you?
Okay, everybody, hear this. I'm taking this woman to hang. For awards, $10,000. That money's mine, boys. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Hold on! You think I'm making hoops with that fella or her? That's my problem, boy. I don't know. One of them fellas will kill everybody in here. Now we're talking! Let's slow it down. Let's slow it way down. When you get to hell, tell them Daisy sent you. said this job's supposed to be easy. <laughs> Nobody said it's supposed to be that hard, neither. Hey. Your first time. Yeah. Yeah, very, very much my, my first time. So much so that when you said it, I was like, oh. Because, you see, the thing is, I do a podcast with generally two men and two women. And mm -hmm. what that means is for every gritty film that I do, uh, I pretty much have to sit through uh, one that's nowhere near as gritty, <laughs> which is fine, because I, I am proud of the breadth of films we do. But uh, the idea about doing something like this, it would require, uh, it would definitely require a trigger warning for one of the members of the panel to go. We yeah. some, so I was really excited to actually go ahead and give this, and I get excited about coming and doing a, a blind first watch I, I really do and then just getting ahead and going to talk about it so i sat down just a couple days ago gave him my first watch and uh saw it was like almost three hours i went oh but it's tarantino and i've got a very positive it's relationship tarantino, with, exactly. with tarantino films um, well so, uh yeah. let's talk about tarantino um let's uh real quick before we get into the actual film um how were you introduced to him early memories of his career if you have any you know <sighs> My earliest memory is probably I remember the 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 um, the hype around Pulp Fiction. I remember yeah. when that was 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 present. Same. I remember the mm -hmm. great Oscar debate about Forrest. Could you get more different than Forrest Gump and the almost sickly sweet nostalgic nature <laughs> of Forrest Gump and Tom Hanks' performance in it versus the effortlessly cool, stylish um, Pulp Fiction. Uh, yes. from, you know, America's next great up and coming filmmaker. This young, cool filmmaker. Exactly. Yeah. And then you heard about this other film he'd done, Reservoir Dogs, which to this day, I still have not seen. Gotta um, get on that. I know. That I know. And Heat. Both I, of those I, films. You're always talking about Heat. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I bought Reservoir Dogs at the start of the first lockdown over here in the UK. It's sitting in my in my bookcase, but we will not watch it until it's time to, until we pits picked for a review. I don't want to go in having seen it twice. I want to go in going, I've literally just watched it. Now let's talk about it. So, uh, but Pulp Fiction, uh, such a strange when I'm first seeing this, it's probably, well, what's Pulp Fiction? 94, I want to say. 94. So about, it's 94, yeah. Yeah, I'm probably about 15, and I'm going, all right. And the what he's doing with narrative and how he's mixing it up for effects so it changes the rules. So not only in the way that stories develop, but even in the way that death is not final. Because, yes, it is for the sense of the world, the character's death is final. But for, for me as the, as, the, as the audience, I get to see bumbling Danny Zuko leave the, you know, the, the, the burger palace and... <laughs> stumble around awkwardly and walk off camera in a moment of of comedy as his last moment so for me he walks around alive he's been resurrected and i'm going what are, what are the rules to storytelling can you do this 
And so uh, I kind of kept a foot in a foot out, um, both with him as a producer slash actor. I mean, I saw, I really loved the first half of From Dusk Till Dawn. <laughs> yeah. Until it, until it turned, and then it becomes a vampire film out of yeah, nowhere. Until it a vampire, I was totally in on this heist movie where they've kidnapped this pastor and his kids. And it was like a hostage movie. I'm like, oh, this is cool. I'm, Did I'm you know what it was going into it? Oh, not a clue. Uh, we were really? renting we were renting videos and I think my sister uh, we had some friends around but we rented a couple of videos and I think my uh -huh. sister picked it because George Clooney had just left ER yes and George yeah. Clooney was Doug Ross the hottest guy on television this is one of his first big movie roles I remember that we're watching from dusk till dawn and I went I don't know what to make of this at all uh and then got I this guess big ass sleeve tattoo on his arm Yes. <laughs> so um, from there, I mean, I didn't see Jackie Brown, but I did keep a foot in. I've seen Inglorious Bastards, Django, um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Big fan mm -hmm. of 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 all those. Um, it's really hard for me to choose between my first love, which is Pulp Fiction, and maybe what I probably consider to be his best work. It's hard, but Inglorious in Bastards. And uh, depending on the day you ask me, one of those two would get my choice. But generally, I leave a Tarantino film fully satisfied with what's occurred because he's always gone somewhere I haven't seen it going. Right. And it's it's not in some M. Night Shyamalan or dare I even say even some Chris Nolan way where not that it's gimmicky, but it's, it's something that the story always holds up to. Mm -hmm. You don't have to look back at it and like re refill in a lot of the gaps. It generally lines up and you go, like, this is a plausible outcome, but I still didn't see it coming. And so generally, that's my perspective on Tarantino. And I just love uh, filmmakers who focus on dialogue. And if you get a Tarantino film, dialogue is going to be important. And so um, that's probably another reason why, as, a, as an English teacher, as a film studies teacher, I just really dig Tarantino. Well, yeah. I mean, you could have just dubbed this film Dialogue the Movie because that's basically <laughs> what this is. Two hours and 47 minutes of just eight strangers in a cabin together, like just, just diving it out, just hiding it out during this blizzard that's overtaking them all. Shit's going away. This is wild. And this is different. Um, but before I really get into it, for me personally, um, Jackie Brown was my introduction. I wow. would love to say it was Pulp Fiction. I remember that wave. <laughs> I was ten in '94, so oh, okay, yeah. But I remember because yeah. I've been, I've been. I mean, dude, my first movie in the theaters was in '88. Beetlejuice. I have memory. Oh, I still I, remember. As far as like good first movie stories, that's pretty good, actually. Yeah. So yeah. I've been in the film literally like since I was a kid, like this tall, and um, so I, I was on the up and up. So when I was ten, '94. Yeah, of course. I definitely remember this and um, all, all the hype he was getting. But even me at that age, I knew I wasn't going to get it. I knew it wasn't going to be a forthright film, you know. Uh, so I, I just gave myself some time. And then I was 97 Christmas time when Jackie Brown came out. It was Christmas Day, actually, in 97 here in the States when that came out. So I was 13. And I saw that I was on winter break that year and me and my buddy, Nick Nemphos, shout out, Nick, we uh, saw it together on the shittiest VHS bootleg <laughs> I had ever seen in my life. Still went and saw it uh, later on, a couple of weeks later, I actually went and gave it a proper view in the, in the theater. But um, so, yeah, oh, that's wait, so when this I was is like, this is like a cinema grab on a VHS. <laughs> Yeah, this was uh, how it was back in 97. Uh, 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 this, for me, it's... Uh, I'm taking even, it back. 
Oh, I'll tell you what, my, my sister, bless her, she'll, she used to have one of those boxes on her TV set that, you know, you could get movies from mm-hmm. everywhere, yada, yada, yep. yada. pay-per-view is what they call it here in the States. It was, but it was one of those, but it was like bootleggy stuff, you know what I mean? It was yeah, the kind yeah, of yeah. stuff that you, you, you knew Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. My buddy had one of those, yes, yeah. exactly. You could get all the channels, all the, yes. And we tried to watch Bridge of Spies, but it was obviously Bridge of Spies that someone had uploaded from a cinema grab, and I was just going, oh, curse, I don't know if I can sit through two hours of this, it's a cinema grab. She went, no, it's not. I went, oh, clear, because the sound is different, you know? Yeah, it, it, the color is a little less saturated, and there's this weird sheen, and then the sound—it's just like you can feel the the distance between where the speaker's spitting it out, and when it hits you the microphone. You can hear a lot of static in the audio. Yeah, it's like it's a little bit, even if it's really tight and doesn't yeah. move, and no one's getting up. There's still a thing. Now that is with you know um, broadband internet downloading and probably a digital device capturing it. I can only imagine what a 1997 Christmas era you know, big bulk camcorder of someone's really <laughs> stuck in there has, has produced as far as quality goes. Yeah. It wasn't the world's best, but it was still something. I, I do remember watching that piece of shit with my buddy. And uh, yeah, so I have better memories. Like I said, I went and gave it a proper view in the theater um, a couple of weeks after that. So I did see this uh, in the movies. Uh, and then around 2001, was when I started working at Blockbuster Video, and that's oh, when I just as a went. teenager that was my dream job. Oh man, yeah. I'm like I want to work at Blockbuster Video. It just felt like the perfect place to sort of be surrounded, to be surrounded by films. It was fun. It was so fun. <laughs> I was I I gave that place five years until they started like really going downhill, and I just dove off that sinking ship yeah. so quickly. And uh, but yeah, back then. Um, is when I rented Pulp Fiction, and uh, that's when I first saw it. Uh, that's when I saw a lot of films for my first time uh, in 2001. Clerks, I saw from working at Blockbuster. Wow. Um, Shawshank Redemption, I, I finally got around to. Goodfellas. Um, so that was when I just kind of, I had seen stuff, but I just took it to a whole new level once I, once I started working at Blockbuster. Because back then, one of the products we're working there was you got five free rentals a week, including films that we usually came in that were new releases before they came out. We call it pre-streets. We could take them home too. Wow. Is that so you can put like the whole Ed recommend sticker on it or something like that? I, I guess. Yeah. For, <laughs> for basically when, you know, people come up and ask, is this good? It's like, well, yeah, sure. <laughs> like we're going to use it on like all new releases, but it was still, it was something. Yeah. Uh, um, But yeah, anyway. And then also in 2001, uh, all the hype around it didn't it hadn't come out yet but kill bill was like announced and that was going to be his next big film was kill bill. i have not seen kill bill uh well I got, I got a thing with uma thurman i'm just not i'm just not a fan so i'm just like oh do i really have it in me nor am i really into um kind of like kung fu-esque which is kind of the vibe that everything that i've seen that's gives exact, off. that's that's like yeah exactly because it's yeah like, so it's like tarantino's like karate film exactly so i'm not i'm sitting there going ah but i, I think as a completionist what will happen is i'll watch reservoir dogs and i'll probably watch jackie brown and then we're gonna have to as a completionist i'll have to watch kill bill right. and i might love it who knows yeah. well even though it's the same movie i i prefer volume one to volume two and i think that's the general consensus on the movie anyway but that's just my personal take. So yeah, that was when Kill Bill, the, all the hype was going around that movie. And then what was after that? Uh, was Inglorious Bastards his next movie? Was it really feels, a seven year? Feels it about really right. A, 
four, yeah, five years. Yeah, that makes sense. Because what I'm really getting at is when a Tarantino movie comes out now, it's an event. It's always been like that, yeah. but it's an event. Um, and then there's a, there's that whole rumor, or it's not really a rumor if he's actually come out and said it forthright, you know, 10 films and he's done. Yep. My math, he's got one more to go. So, um, yeah. Do you I think, think story- he's going to stay. Do you think he's going to stick to it? I think storytellers have to tell stories, don't they? I think there'll be another yeah. story in his head. He might try another medium. He might do something else. But I think at the end, he'll come back to film. It's it's what he does. Um, you have to go away before they can appreciate you for coming back. You have to take the makeup off before you can put it back on. So, um, yeah. He can, go, he can come back and make Kill Bill Volume 3 and say, oh, but this is, it's the same movie. It's a continuation of one of my films. So, you know. I guess you could, yeah, you could go down that road. You can, you can use technicality on that one. <laughs> Glorious Bastards Volume 2. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, so uh, first time viewings. Uh, it's, it's just that. You see, this is actually uh, my, my first time. No, no, my first, it's my first time uh, since my first time. So technically, that's my second time, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to suck at it. So if I'm not up to this, is the part of the show you've heard, which I know you've listened to the show before. This is where we go over our first time viewings. Obviously, you, this is your first time, as in what three days ago you said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, th- Thursday night. So I'm within 48 hours. All right. So uh, I yeah. saw this in the theater um, day after Christmas because it came out here in, this, in the states on Christmas. Christmas Day, 2015. What okay. a Christmas movie. And the night after, I went with my uncle and my cousin, which kind of actually leads into our story time portion of this. Tell me a story. Wait. Like my story? No, not your story. A story. Since you can't keep your mouth shut long enough for me to read my paper, tell me a story. I don't think I know any stories. You don't know any stories? No. All right, I'll tell you a story. This is a newspaper, right? It's 90% bullshit, but it's entertaining. That's why I read it, because it entertains me. You won't let me read it. So you entertain me with your bullshit. Tell me a story right now. Go. When this movie came out for the first week, there was an engagement called the Roadshow Presentation. And it was a big old school theatrical event. Like when you came in, there was a five minute overture before the movie started. It was shown on an actual projector 70 millimeter <laughs> and it was it had an intermission in between after um chapter three ended right before chapter four starts there was right there in the middle the intermission yeah, that's, that's the place minutes. i put it yeah yep and then so it was cool you know went out had a smoke got some refreshments came back and then watched the last hour and a half and then we got like a big like this program like like the old school theatrical way. Like you got a program with this, you got an overture, you got an intermission, like the whole nine and projection in the back. When the movie started, I heard that projection start flickering. Just, ah, took me back, man. Took me back because <laughs> everything's all digital now. Yeah. So, um, and it was cool. I, I, I really got into that, that whole release. It was only for a week and I actually uh, went back and saw it for a second time. So I saw it twice that week. I actually, I'm looking at my both my programs right now, actually. And it was really fun. Um, actually, Sean, if he was here for this episode, uh, he uh, went with me from the, my second viewing, and that was his first time. So this movie, let me get into it right now and ask you, 
What were your thoughts? Wow. Um, is this just like a general sort of? I'm. Uh, cu- I've been curious for days. Seriously, is this, just, is this just the macroistic? Did I like it? Did I not like it? Question: Is that what this is? Yeah, I just want to know, like, before we go into like the plot, you know, like, yeah, like, okay, how the, you know, I just want to know before we get into the meat of the episode, like, how you thought about the movie overall. Uh, I would put this right up there. It's it's top level, uh, Tarantino level sort of stuff. It's it meets that bar that I expect when I when I when I see the, the, those two names on 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 the screen. Well, the first name and last name. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's up there with uh, Django. Uh, it's, it's up there with. Um, Glorious Bastard or Pulp Fiction. Uh, I'd argue it's better than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, I do like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but it takes a hell of a long time to get to a fun third act. This this kind of had me more throughout. Uh, it didn't have to build as much because it was already there. I got locked into that cabin pretty damn quick. Yeah, uh, and then from, so from there it's it's tension, it's character development, it's, it's it's a murder mystery in reverse in many ways, where you're trying to figure out who everybody is before before the murder happens even. And so right. uh, I like how this went down. I know uh, I saw some mentions of it on on the film effect Twitter thing about it being uh, a play. It felt like a play. It, it definitely this could be a play. This was this was very play esque. And um, I tend to like I, I, I like films where people s- sit around and talk and it's all character development. I, I'm a yes. massive fan Same. of that sort of thing. And Same. that's what this is. And so if it's done well and so you have to be someone mm-hmm. who can write dialogue and for the love of money can Quentin Tarantino write dialogue. The guy's the guy might be the master of our time at doing that. So, yeah, um, love it. Love it. Very, very, very positive response on my part. Very good. I was. Kind of scared you were going to lean the other way, but I'm happy no. here. It's top tier for you. That's 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 awesome. No, really, really quite excited about this. That's what I was thinking. Okay, mm. how long before we can probably do this on the <laughs> on the PF? It'll have to be a while, but it's it's definitely one that I could see us uh, throwing up there at some point. Uh, the thing that threw me off was I'm not usually a big Western guy, and so the uh, the thing that probably kept me away from this is two things. Number one being just that aesthetic of the frontier westerny kind of kind of concept that sort of mm. post civil war era timeline i'm like eh, okay cuz i felt like kurt russell was doing a lot of that around you know that time frame yeah and i i agree with that i was actually thinking the same thing like it felt familiar with him yeah. that i i've seen him play that a lot and or, the other thing is more, it, yeah it's really weird uh i used to live in canada uh, in case the, the accent needs some introduction. Now, now I live in the UK. And Canada's a lot more like the United States in the way that movies are marketed. And so you're watching a TV program, it goes to commercial, and you're probably going to get a, 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 an ad for some movie playing during the, the commercial break. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't seem to happen as much in the film industry in the, in the UK. I always wonder why the economics of film were so heavily skewed towards the Canadian slash American market as the domestic market. And that almost always you know, equals the rest of the world combined. And I think it's just not that level of permutation in the culture. So something like The Hateful Eight, especially an R-rated film in the in the US and Canada, what we call an 18 over here, um, probably wouldn't get the same sort of exposure. So it was one of those ones that I heard was out, but didn't really get the buzz in the way uh, Bastards did, in the way that Django did, in the way that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood did. So it was really, it was sort of like this little hidden one in the middle. And I just kind of went, well, no one's really making a big enough deal of it. I, I don't really have to get around to seeing it. So if I it wasn't for this, I wouldn't have watched it. I I'd love to hear your that. theory. 
Well, okay. So this came out in 2015. Um, this was right at the tail end of the Weinstein company who who released this film. Uh, I did see the names and go, ooh, that's not. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Seeing that, it's kind of like, ooh. Yeah. That has to have an effect on the reason. Because I was actually, before we uh, started this uh, this morning, I was crunching some numbers and looking them around and comparing his more recent films like to see, to see how the numbers like added up and, and were aligned with one another and to my surprise this brought in the least amount of all of his films in the last i just looked up since from glorious bastards to hollywood and this was low and not even by like a not even like close like it was by it was really off like this was only this grossed only 155.8 million dollars was his take in at the total worldwide oh wow compared Jeez. compared to 346 or something like that for bastards or django that that yeah. was the next one there's a two you know that 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 a 200 million dollar difference from this to his next lowest grossed film and it's it like, has to be because of the market? Weinsteins and not marketing their lack of marketing and yeah that's true how too, do you market this film I have no idea like glorious bastards were, Tarantino's were, eighth film just like the title card yeah it's, it's just a bit gimmicky I mean how do you you know glorious bastards you know we're killing Nazis all right I'm in right right um Django we're taking down a plantation great I'm in I don't know how you market this without giving without giving away. And the thing about Tarantino is he always holds these pivots so close to the vest, and they need to be to have the impact they do. So I really don't know how you even frame this for for, for an audience. I don't not without giving away information you, you you can't have given away. So I think it's a tricky one to do. I think it's a hard sell. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, you're right about that uh, when you think about it. Because when this was. I made a mistake, first of all, on the Twitter. You you had mentioned the the post that I made about this being a stage play. It actually wasn't, uh, and and someone called me out on it, and I'm glad he did because uh, I, uh, this was actually first announced uh, in 2013. I'm pulling up my note right now. Hang on okay. a second. Do, 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 do. Okay, so in early, no, late. So in November 2013, this is when he announced that he was working on another Western this would become that Western he was talking about. But at the time he had just started the story and he was attempting to either make it its own thing or a sequel to Django Unchained called Django and white hell. But he realized ah. that the Django character did not fit the story. So it was announced a month later or two months later on January 12th, 2014, his eighth film was announced as the hateful eight inspired by the 1960s western tv series bonanza the virginian and high um chaparro anyway yeah uh so that's when also his script for this film would leak in same same month in january the script leaked i remember that happened too and he was just so bummed out about it you know that he called it off basically yeah I, I, i'm not surprised and then in April, instead, because he just still had this great piece of work, even though some people who chose to download it and read it did, whatever, he 
announced in April that he was doing a live reading of the script at uh, the UA United Artists Theater in uh, Los Angeles. So that's what happened. I remember this event happening as well. Uh, Tarantino uh, included Samuel L. Jackson, Kurt Russell, Amber Tamberlin actually was in the uh, Daisy Montague role instead of uh, oh, okay. Jennifer Jason Leigh. Uh, James Parks, Walter Goggins, Zoe Bell, James Ramar, um, and everyone else from the cast, basically. And then the film was finally announced later on that year. So that's how this. And then more recently, there was they're bouncing around the idea of this becoming an actual stage play. So because it, it just totally made, could work at that. It absolutely it, it could, could. Work at that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And this it, it plays out like a play. It, it's it's all in one setting, you know, minus a couple of, of scenes for the mm-hmm. most part. Because you got to remember, it's like two hour and forty five minute movie, and yep. doesn't feel that at all. You no, do not feel this this length at all. Um. So yeah. Before we get into the actual plot, is there anything that I missed that you think that we should cover? No, I don't think so. I think we're we're pretty much ready to try and talk our way onto the wagon. Here we go. Dive right in. There you go. All right. So before the film even starts, we hear that wonderful Ennio Marconi score that acts as a supporting character in this film, in my opinion. Uh, well said. The most, yeah. The most beautiful shots of winter opens the film as it suddenly cuts <laughs> to the opening credits. Uh, Canada in spring. Uh. <laughs> Not too far removed. I was trying to figure out where it was at first. And uh, Wyoming's a pretty damn good choice. Yeah. Yeah get that shot of the uh the wooden jesus christ statue that yeah. slowly pulls back as the cast and crew credits are revealed on the screen one of my favorite openings to a tarantino film i just love these shots um he's really getting some use out of that 65 millimeter camera that he had to put in i think the weinsteins now uh, said that they paid between eight to ten thousand dollars a thousand eight to ten million dollars just for the camera parts alone I think the, the the camera that is three different cameras total that he used all 65 millimeter cameras. So yeah, it's, it's nice to have someone who's still a visionary for that side of it. It really is. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm so focused on story. Uh, when I look at a film, uh, obviously he's got the whole thing in, in, in his mind and even coming down to film choice and film stock, um, therefore camera selection, um, things that I wouldn't even, think about considering um yeah yeah it, it's it, it's it's a beautifully shot film it looks absolutely amazing um so as it continues to pull back we get the stagecoach as it pushes through the snow with a deadly blizzard following not far behind and then this is where we get the title card it says chapter one last stage to red rock in post-Civil War Wyoming, Major Marquise, the bounty hunter Warren, attempts to hitch a ride on a stagecoach driven by O.B. Jackson. Warren here is played by Samuel L. Jackson, the man, trying to transport the corpses of three outlaws to Red Rock for a handsome reward. Uh, O.B. here played by James Parks, son of the late Michael Parks. Um, probably most famous for... You talked about from dust till dawn earlier yeah. he's the sheriff if you remember the movie uh, at all in the beginning he's the sheriff in the beginning scene at the uh the, the the liquor store that comes in 
as you know uh, tarantino and clooney have their hostages in the back yeah and then he just comes up and as they're in mid-conversation shoots him in the back of the head that sheriff is uh, <laughs> the, is the father of this the guy who plays ob here who's oh, driving nice the, uh, the wagon yeah yeah um so then he instructs Warren to consult the uh, passenger of the coach, John Hangman Ruth, infamous bounty hunter, played by Kurt Russell with I'm jealous as shit for this mustache and beard that this guy's oh. got going on. <laughs> Let me tell you. There's something there. Man. Yeah. Um, so he's escorting Daisy the prisoner Damagu to Red Rock alive to collect a $10,000 reward. Uh, I think they said over the course of the three bodies that uh, Jackson has that his rewards for 8,000. So not far behind his. Nope. Just to see her hang. Cause that's his thing that they, they describe. Um, Cause Jackson goes into like a little monologue talking about, you know, why he's called the hangman. And it's about, you know, cause he likes to go and actually see them hang more or less. That's what he breaks it down to. Um. So to ensure that she can't escape, we see that uh, Ruth has been handcuffed to uh, Daisy just to make sure nothing happens. No foul play. Uh, Warren and Ruth know each other, haven't seen each other in Chattanooga some eight months prior. Ruth agrees to let Warren ride with them to a Passover called Minnie's Haberdashery. If, if uh, Haberdashery, Haberdashery, if I may, uh, the the, the level of paranoia which uh, Russell plays Ruth as 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 Samuel Jackson's approaching, and just the amount of care he takes was necessary, I think, in order to establish. In order to get where we get to in the middle of the movie, because the movie has to have you going, is he just being overly paranoid or is there something actually wrong here? And we have to sort of waver on both sides of that. And without this happening at the off in act one with someone who he even knows, as it turns out, I don't think it's as effective to get in there or else we would just discount him as either going, either giving the plot away or we just discounted as going, we, you, you just clear out paranoid. But this allows us to sort of experience both of them, depending on the character he's speaking to once we get there. But none of that happens if you don't set it up here. Agreed. And it's also worth pointing out that there's also you can feel a sense of tension still. Um, these characters i feel i completely overlooked daisy's character i will say that right at the off she was just a plot device i thought at this point she's just the excuse to have these two other characters get introduced and i think that's by design even the way it's shot she's just pushed off to this the corner almost out of the frame all the time so that you really do just overlook and think it's going to be about the relationship between um, Samuel Jackson and Kurt Russell, and instead, uh, it's it's just a wonderful way of hiding in plain sight what actually the film's gonna be about. She's smart. I always feel like Daisy's always one step ahead. It's it's just because she's uh... well, she should be panicking more, and she's clearly not. No, she's she's a tough cookie. Uh, if I was about to be taken to my death, and we're talking about you know my last moments, my last days, my last hours. I think there'd be a little, but there's just almost this quiet calm and just sort of back talking defiance. We also got to remember too, because she knows what's ha- going to happen at the, you know, the haberdashery, 
you know, right. But, but, but whole... she's not trying to hide. That's the thing. So it's hiding in plain sight, but she's not trying to hide it to them necessarily. Yes, okay. She's a little too calm and isn't playing an act. And yet it's just, it's just really, I'm seeing what you're saying. It's a really interesting you. character sort of portrayal. Yeah. Um, I like how the whole, the, as the film goes along, she becomes more like animated in some sequences. Like there's like the whole introduction that Ruth gives you know, when he comes into the, 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 the place and tells everyone like who he is and what he's there for. <laughs> and she does this whole like motion where she's hanging herself as he's talking about, you know, what you know, Red Rock to do. And I just always found comedy in that. It's, yeah. it's just funny stuff. Um, so yeah, and back in the year, uh, out of nowhere, Ruth asked Warren if he still has the uh, the Lincoln letter. I uh, I know we only met each other the once before, and uh, I don't mean to unduly imply intimacy, but well, you still got it. I still got what? The Lincoln letter. Of course. Got it on you? Mm-hmm. Where? Right here. Look, I know you gotta be real careful with it and all, and I can imagine you probably don't like taking it in and out of the envelope all that often, but uh, if you wouldn't mind, I'd sure appreciate seeing that again. You're right. I don't like taking it in and out of the envelope that much. Yeah. But seeing how you saved my life and all. I suppose I can let you read it again. Todd's calling, so I guess it must be time for bed. Old Mary Todd. Ah, <clears throat> that. Get up, boy. that gets me. <laughs> yeah, it gets me too. <clears throat> you know what this is, Tramp. Hmm? It's a letter from Lincoln. Letter from Lincoln to him says that he was a uh, pen pals of Abraham Lincoln and he's got a letter that he keeps on him. So Warren produces the letter, which uh, Ruth reads and then uh, and like Ruth loves this. Ruth loves the fact that he has one and loves to read the letter and it's just 100% smitten with this with this whole concept. Yeah. Um, old Mary Todd's calling, so I guess it must be time for bed. And he's like, that always gets me. And he's like, yeah, it gets me too. And he's so respectful about, I'm sure you don't like to take it out and take it out of the envelope and uncrease it. And just the amount of care he's got for this, which is really ironic considering how suspicious he is of everybody and everything else. He believes wholeheartedly in this letter. Yeah. 
Yeah. He didn't, yeah, he didn't begin explaining exactly what it is to Daisy and explaining that they were pen pals when she suddenly spits her blood onto the letter. <laughs> and Warren responds with a vicious punch that sends her flying out of the moving stagecoach. And there's taking just enough of a look. Her. <laughs> yeah. Taking Ruth right along with her. Uh, Warren orders Obi to stop the wagon and mm. everyone just collects themselves here. So... Obi announces that there's someone else approaching them on foot. And this is when we're introduced to Walton, Go- Walton Goggins, Chris Mannix, who also claims that who's claiming to be heading to Red Rock to become their new sheriff. Now, this is where it, he does a really good job with making you question if he's being truthful or if he's, you know, got something up, up his sleeve. Is he there to like, you know, free Daisy, like, you know, the, the, the men at the, Haberdashery we're going to see coming up it suspects i've i've always well, he, he also plays with with our knowledge of historical context so we have samuel jackson in a post-civil war era and then we have um sheriff mannix who who obviously is fighting for the confederate side and we're putting them in the same place at the same time and so our natural inclination is because he's on the wrong side of history in the civil war we want to almost defer to him all negative um sort of you know that one choice means he's he's from the evil league of evil he's just wrong about everything and is immoral about everything because he's on this side here and there's clear animosity between the two of them still and okay. so I think that's really, again, well-established to act one so that when things happen later on, we don't see it coming. I guess here he's calling it chapter two. But yeah, um, and, and I, again, I just think you want to talk about, you know, strange bedfellows. This is a really <laughs> great starting point to get us where we're going to go. I agree. So Ruth then suspects Warren and Lennox of being in cahoots. So this is when he orders uh, Warren and uh, Ruth, uh, Warren and Lennox to cuff themselves against his will. Uh, then we get chapter two, son of a gun, what this one's called. So similar to the scene before with Warren trying to catch a ride, Lennox gets the same treatment from Ruth. Upon coming around to the wagon, Ruth recognizes Lennox, but Lennox doesn't know him. So he explains that he's being sworn, sworn in when he gets to town and adds that the bodies being taken to Red Rock need to be paid. And he's the guy that will be paying them. So once he recognizes Warren in the wagon as well, he asks if they're having a bounty, a bounty hunter's picnic. Well, I'll be double dog damn. You're the hangman, Bob Ruth. It's John. And you, you're with the head, Major Marquess. My lord, is that really the real head of Major Marquess looking at me now? Yeah, it's really me and it's really my head. So what's going on? Uh, y'all having a bounty hunter's picnic? Never mind. Uh, you taking in three dead bodies and, and her in the Red Rock to get paid, ain't you? Yeah. Well, the man in Red Rock's supposed to pay you is me, the new sheriff. So if y'all want to get paid, y'all need to get me to Red Rock. Well, excuse me for finding it hard to believe a town electing you to do anything except drop dead. So I'm supposed to freeze to death because you find something hard to believe? I uses this story of being the new sheriff to catch a ride and eventually boards the wagon with the group, saying that if they let him die, it's murder. Yeah, he blackmails his way on. He does. <laughs> his his, his over-the-top mannerisms and the way he talks and everything throughout this whole movie, which it's first established here, you know, how... The, 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 the ooh, yeah, like the way he talks like that. I just 
for my money, this is probably my favorite Walter Goggins performances, but definitely by by a landslide. And, and again, I feel like I'm a broken record at this point, but the idea that Root questions his um, his true identity and then how and we're sitting there kind of he's the one we're really quite unsure about. But then when he gets later on, he starts doubting everybody else's. Again, if we don't establish this right at the off, it's just so well done. We have all these microtransactions of communication that'll pay off in bigger spades once we get to the haberdashery. But it's just enough that it throws us off the scent as a viewer. I, I just I just think it's masterful the way it's been constructed. So then we get this story, not really a story, but this is when he talks about $30,000 bounty that was once put on for Warren by the Confederacy that eventually dwindled away. And he, he reveals, Warren reveals how he escaped from a Confederate prison by burning it down, the place about the kerosene, he says, killing 37 people before returning north. And then he goes into his history as a bounty hunter that is yet to be stopped by those who have come searching for him. I forgot about this even happening from the last time I had seen this because prior to watching it yesterday, I, it's it, it had been about a good two, three years since the last time I'd seen the movie. And I completely, to be honest, forgot about this whole story being told that, that Lennox brings up. And although Ruth doesn't address it, um, I think as the audience, we're going, is this the kind of man that Abraham Lincoln's going to be sending a letter to? We've got two very different stories about who about who this is, about who Major Marcus Warren is. Mm -hmm. And is this the kind of man who Abraham Lincoln would be sending not just one letter, but but repeated correspondence? These two, someone's got to be lying here. And um, yeah, and we want, we're trained because of the early, uh, everything we've already talked about with uh, Sheriff Mannix, we're, we're, we're already kind of conditioned to think of him as being wrong and on the wrong side of every story. And therefore, we want him to be wrong about this situation, especially when Ruth, who's the character that I think we're most aligned to as the audience, we're led to believe he is our protagonist in this tale at this point. He's all, because he's always looking over his shoulder. Yeah. And for, 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 Good reason, you know, yeah. and us as the audience is doing the same thing with these characters. And also, like, who everyone's trust, trying to get into to? his into his uh, wagon, so he controls the means that he's driving, mm -hmm. not literally maybe, but he's driving the story. And so, um, yeah, and as the audience, we're left to reconcile. How do we feel about if it's true? How do we feel about Major? Mar Marcus Warren, do are, are we are we cool with this? I mean, is he aware that they're going to die? Um, what is right. what has occurred there? And so, again, it's this idea that nobody sits on the. I mean, Tarantino's great at creating complicated characters who are neither wholly good or wholly immoral, and they're all these shades of gray, especially at different points in their journey. And um, we even get the nice little riff from um, Warren that many, many Southern boys came up looking for their fame and fortune. And they didn't find fortune. All they found was him. And I'm like, ooh. Yeah. Which was important yeah, for later. That's a good one. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's what to, to interpret that. Um, Nah, never mind. So on the coach, Mannix says that he will buy the two men dinner and a drink at the haberdashery. Ruth says that he doesn't drink or break bread with rival renegades. Mannix says, it sounds like you got it. You have an axe to grind against the court, against the cause. And Ruth says that there is no cause, just terrorizing people, especially he points out to Warren. 
emancipated blacks. Domagoo says that she supports that kind of thing. Manic says that Ruth is misinformed by union newspapers. And Manic says Washington, D.C. <laughs> yes, yeah. Manic asks, uh, Warren, if Ruth knows how famous Warren once was, she says no. Manix asks if Daisy knows Warren. She says she knows that he had a huge bounty. This is when the $3,000 bounty is brought up. Um, Warren's bounty fell to $5,000, but people, that's okay. So, yeah, to, to kind of like circle back to the story I was telling about that, this part here, the $30,000 dwindled down to a mere $5,000, but people are still trying to collect it. He says that he has killed several, several of them. Uh, a union veteran himself tells Ruth of how he burned down the, the Wallenbeck, Wallenbeck prison camp in order to escape. Mannix is offended because of the young Southern man who died there, but Warren is uh, indignant, uh, asking why he should apologize for killing Confederates who wanted to enslave him. Mannix says that he also killed 37 Union prisoners of war. Warren says that people die in war. Mannix says war is hell. It's hard to argue with, but that Union also investigated him following the war. Mannix claims that Warren was ultimately forgiven because of his service and the cavalry against wars against indigenous people. Ruth says that Mannix has no right to talk, given the atrocities that his father inflicted on black people. Mannix says not to talk about his father, who was fighting for the uh, dignity and defeat that Southern white men as the brothers of those in the North deserved. That's why I film like this is kind of so hard to break down a podcast because it's so dialogue driven. <laughs> it is dialogue heavy. It's literally, it's you know, if you want to get down to it, it's it's eight different people in a cabin that yep. having different conversations, one by one, like ten little Indians get all picked off. That's your movie, <laughs> you know. You it's kind of like Tarantino's like a Western mystery, you know. It's like so if he said, What if the Donner Party all had guns and just shot each other <laughs> rather than resorting yeah, to cannibalism? Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Basically, talking politics, that's what they're doing for the most part. Nothing really happens in this until we get to chapter three. And that's this is like when stuff really starts to happen outside of dialogue. Oh, yes. The stage wagon has arrived. Minnie's haberdashery. So the group finally arrive at Minnie's haberdashery and they find it in the in the hands of Bob the Mexican. That answers who explains that the owner, Minnie Mink, is visiting family for a week and has entrusted the Passover to him. So Warren is suspicious as all hell. And us as the audience, I know I was, was like, okay, the jig is up on this guy already. Just looking at him. Uh, he's played here by Damien Bichir. Um Really speaking of over the top, like, but doing it well. Like, it's not like I'm not making fun of the character, you know, or, or Mr. B. Here at all, personally. I, I, I think it's rather brilliant the way he plays the character um, in, in this manner. Uh, what do you think of Bob? <laughs> I think I overlooked Bob. I think Bob was a plot device to me. Um, okay. I think he was a. <clears throat> Uh, a warning light to the audience that something wasn't really afoot. Uh, he's suspect right away. Yeah, he's designed to raise our suspicions before we've even entered the haberdashery, and that is done. And a large part of this is done through the experience of uh, Warren, who uh, seems to be the most intimately f familiar with the haberdashery out of all the characters. 
Right. And so as a result, he can tell yeah, us all the things that don't line up. And so the first thing is, is Bob and, um, you know, Bob doesn't even want to put away the horses. He's already put away some yeah. horses. He doesn't want to put away any more horses. Which is gonna be a red flag. Like we, we we're here for the night. We want to do we want to do some business here. Uh, this is part of the gig, and he's just clearly not wanting any part of it. Which if you're left with the control of of, of yeah. the business, this is this is part of the gig. So, but in reality, he's drawn, of course, the short straw. So so out he goes, but demands help from um, the two the two fighting um, civil war vets in the, in the carriage. That's okay. They're not all winners. So we, we can say <laughs> that Bob was probably did poorly. They were just, yeah. There were just other people who drew my eye more. And so I kind of, yeah, you're, not, you're not talking about like the, the performance or anything. You're talking about the no, character. No, the performance general, was, like, the performance was fine. Uh, he did the right. role. He just wasn't one that I don't think was as designed to stand. There was a lot of big moments and big characters. And as a result, I think Bob's kind of fades away because after we get inside, I think Bob's mainly an afterthought. Yeah, exactly. He is. And it's like, you know, when the big, the big reveal happens, you know, a little bit coming up, you know, it's like, the most obvious one, of course, Bob was on it too. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Warren's suspicious of Bob's explanation. Uh, a lot of things. Warren's just calling the suspect right now. And one of them, uh, I can't remember if it's this moment or a little bit later, where he's inside and he steps down and sees a jelly bean in the crack of the floor panel. This is and, a that's, there's a while to go before that because he goes and helps okay. put away the horses first. Okay, okay, I thought so. Uh, so we'll get back to that. Um, so Ruth and Daisy go inside and meet the others staying at the haberdashery. Uh, Oswaldo, the little man, Mowbray, introduces himself as the hangman of Red Rock and speaks with an English accent. Oh, not just an English accent. Roth, a very, the, very over-the-top The English most accent. sickly sweet, posh English accent one could imagine. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Is, do you guys have a lot of people like this over there? They talk <laughs> like this and act like this in the way he does? Oh, I don't. I think he's a caricature of what the posh little British man is supposed to be like, especially and then mix that in with history and go go 150 years in the past. And what would that look like? Right. Uh, it is interesting that once um, he once the jig is up, he reverts back to a much more working class accent. So it was interesting that for his role as a hangman, he felt that he needed to adopt this uh, as far too posh for a hangman kind of uh, uh, accent, but but chooses to do so. Interesting choice. He, he would remind you more of like a doctor of the town more than a hangman. Yes, I, I would. I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, are you familiar with Tim Roth's work? Are you a fan of his? Oh, Tim Roth. Most of my stuff with Tim Roth is. Uh, honey bunny in the beginning of honey bunny in the beginning and the end of pulp fiction of course yeah <laughs> i remember him as the villain in that horrible incredible hulk movie Planet of the apes oh he's a planet of the apes as well that's right he's the villain of <laughs> you're talking about, i thought you were gonna say planet of the apes but you were talking about hawk i forgot I'm all about talking, that too. i'm talking when he's uh oh what's the name of it uh uh the abomination oh, abomination yeah evil hulk which they shot on the streets of toronto i'll have you know so really um yeah he, he actually was he was he was in that the, the movie was terrible i thought tim roth was generally quite good in that film so I, I i like tim roth i think tim roth is an actor's actor i do i do yeah um, I which is why i think tarantino keeps keeps grabbing him uh for, for things and he's always he's not samey like he's not 
you know, this doesn't feel like honey bunny at all in, no. in, in, in the starting of the sequence, nor does it feel like abomination or <laughs> general, whatever he was in planet of the apes. Um, he's able to craft unique characters each and every time. And you forget very quickly you're watching a performance and you just kind yeah. of buy in. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I like Tim Roth. I like Tim Roth in this, he and in a, in a world so far where everybody had been kind of, um, paranoid and yelly and and a lot of um, tension. I mm -hmm. thought his performance was great at being the guy who brings, even because he's small and little, he just brought everything back down. Everything was, he was a calming presence. Yes. Yeah. yeah. All right, very good. Uh, so he asked to see the warrant that Ruth has uh, is carrying for Daisy. Uh, meanwhile, Ror meanwhile, Warren, Mannix, Obi, and Bob put the horses away. And then Mannix and Obi set up ropes to find the outhouse and the stable in the snow. Because uh, the blizzard's right over them, right at this point of the film. And it's pretty bad. Only going to get much worse. Got some stew cooking. Should be done soon. Now, look, no matter how bad this blizzard gets, we still got to feed these horses and take a squat from time to time. So me and Chris better lay out a line from the stable to the front door and from the front door to the shit house. Okay? Good idea. So that's, I think Obi's the one who says we should put out rope because people are gonna have to use the bathroom and such. You gotta feed the horses too, so. Uh, it's just like a whiteout blizzard, so. Pretty smart thinking. Uh, so Warren stays behind to help Bob. At first, Bob doesn't want the help. But Warren's like, I'm asking you if you need help in a blizzard. And you're saying no. Yeah. <laughs> so Warren, uh, he agrees to let him, you know, the remaining stable work. Well, this is where Warren asks Bob where Minnie is. He says that it doesn't sound like it doesn't sound like her to have left Joe, uh, Joe Gage, a quiet cowboy in Stanford, the Confederate Smithers, an aging former Confederate, to the place. As the film cuts from the stable to the haberdashery, there's like a sudden cut in the score at this moment. I made a note of that in, in here. Ruth, suspicious that they may be trying to ambush him and release Daisy, announces that his, his intent to deliver Daisy to Red Rock alive. Okay, everybody. Hear this. This here is Daisy Domergue. She's wanted dead or alive for murder. $10,000. That money's mine, boys. Don't want to share it. I ain't gonna lose it. When that sun comes out, I'm taking this woman into Red Rock to hang. Now, is there anybody here committed to stopping me from doing that? Forcefully disarms all but one of their pistols. And then we get the stew dinner where Manic starts teasing Warren over the Lincoln letter that he has, saying that there's no chance Warren was friends with Abe Lincoln. Ruth says that he is surely telling the truth, but Warren reveals that it is a lie. 
So Manix and Daisy laugh. Ruth throws Stu right in Daisy's face. Uh, and in nowhere, too. So a lot of the things that happened in this movie, like, A, kind of shot at the time when I first saw this, that they had the boss that go there. That, yeah. Not, not so much how the boss to go there, but not I was kind of surprised that, that it happens and, and, and then it happens so suddenly, like out of nowhere. Like there is well, a lot well, of they're, they're doing this. Okay. There's a lot of violence against women, and there is yeah. a lot of violence against women played for laughs. And if Jennifer Jason right. isn't as good as she is, I think it would be I think you'd have a much more of an oppos- oppositional viewpoint from the audience. Uh, also, the idea that she truly is just a terrible human being, and that 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 helps with the with the notion of um, sort of getting her comeuppance. Just like he's probably treating yeah. her the same way he'd treat Ob if Ob was a prisoner or a male prisoner who got out of line. But uh, the first time it happened in the, in the carriage, I was like, "Oh, it's kind of weird about that." But the midway point, I'm kind of becoming normalized to it in this film. Yeah, um, I want to note. I forgot to do it in the note. We're going down to break the plot. That uh, the when it happens the first time, Daisy kind of like looks at Warren and is licking around her mouth and lips and gives him this wickedly evil, eerie smile. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do remember that. that. I, I think it's a bit of a thing. So, as the audience, we're told it's okay. In a strange way, I think it's it's going. Oh, it's okay. Yeah. She kind of likes uh, it. No, but uh, nah, I know, I know, and it's 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 because there is the question that's kind posed, of a touchy subject. It to is tiptoe around. There is the question that's posed uh, to uh, Tim Roth as as the hangman, where they go, "Don't you feel any guilt hanging a woman?" And says, "Until they make a gun that can't, where the trigger can't be pulled by." By, by the finger of a woman, then I'm totally okay with what I have to do here. And I, I, I think there was a message in that where you went, you know, people who are um, worthy of justice are worthy of justice regardless of gender now. It becomes difficult for us to watch. Right. Um, because it's obviously something that's in everyday real life we would um, strongly and vehemently oppose. But Tarantino's kind of uh, a master of taking things that we would feel uncomfortable with generally and um, giving the situation context where we understand why in this situation we don't feel angry for viewing it. The same thing happens in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, The same thing happens in Inglorious Bastards, if I recall. So, yeah. It's kind of a thing where... Now we're on the subject uh, with Tarantino and this the subject of the, 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 the violence against women. And then the other one, the language in this film, uh, certain words that are used that uh, big, no, no <laughs> racial but, epithets. I'm assuming. Yes, we're talking about. Yes, yes. Yes, sir. And I'd always argue, I'm still going to argue it. It's Tarantino. You know, I, I don't know. I'm doing a shitty job of wording this right now. What I'm getting at is this shit would not fly in anyone else's films. You, you would not see this in, in yeah. a film from so-and-so. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I do. Spike Lee, Spike, Spike Lee had a real issue with some of the language that Tarantino uses in his film specifically, especially when he wrote the word, when he his character in Pulp Fiction uses... Um, 
sort of the main racial epithet, if you, yes. I'm sure, sure everyone can, can imagine what I'm referring to here. And the yeah. issue was, look, you are the screenwriter and the actor. And it was something that, that, that Spike Lee can, can relate to. He has acted in several of the films that he has written. Mm-hmm. So go Correct. and look, you, you knew exactly when you wrote this and you cast yourself in this role, not the original choice, mind you, but still uh, was a situation that, 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 that occurred. Um, you knew how this was going to um, play out. Um, as part of me goes, I want to have a world where we can still tell all the stories. And part of that includes having a racist character. As long as that situation is, this isn't the hero. This isn't something we're encouraged to get behind, nor it's just lazy characterization where, how do I prove this guy's a bad guy? I know I'll have him use this racial slur. And then everyone knows he's a bad guy. There's some TV shows that are terrible for this. Or just before we need to go, oh, we need to be okay with this person dying. Oh, it's okay. They're a racist. He just used a racial slur. I'm okay with him dying now. Um, however. Kind of like cancel culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I'm going, I, I don't want to cancel out narratives where you can have racist racist characters because there are racist people. I, I think we need to make sure that art stays available and that people can say, as long as he's not yeah. doing some sort of weird um glorification of using racial slurs and gets away with it i don't think he does this i don't think he goes to this, to this degree that's the key it. word glorification because he's yeah. not glorifying it and i i was thinking about this earlier probably longer than i should have but and it's it's about the the the, the the defense that he uses and it's true though because you know talk about you know this home in particular and you know the reason that these slurs are thrown out like candy for the most part especially in certain scenes where it's like fucking every other word it's it's crazy i was thinking about it today i was watching it you know yesterday just again hadn't seen it in a few years and kind of taken back at you know some of the stuff that was said um but the defense is it's just language that would be spoken in the time. It's the truth. It's it, in Tarantino. And I was reading an article too to back up what I'm saying here. And, and Sam Jackson and Tarantino both said, you know, it's, it's the dialogue is written just like how it would be spoken at that time, at that moment. If it was, you know, a situation without a camera between two people at that, in, in that era, like that's these words, they're not right, but, that's how the, that's why they're there because that's how people speak, you know? And, and we even get, um, Kurt Russell as John Ruth telling us, uh, when, uh, I think it's when Sheriff Mannix, maybe it's not when Sheriff Mannix comes on. Maybe it's, uh, Daisy who says it, but who, um, uses a racial slur on Warren very early on and says, I think you should stop saying that word. Just why I think the people, you know, the, the people are coming to find that word offensive. Um, and so he kind of gets that, you know, you know, the hero isn't yeah. using that word. The hero is saying, don't use that word because the closest thing we have to a hero in this, well, actually not closest thing. I think John Ruth, with the exception of his treatment of Daisy, uh, generally is the most principled one of the group. It seems like, I agree um, I, and so definitely. he becomes kind of our, our moral compass. And so we go, Oh, look, he's the one who's not going to be a racist here. He's the good guy. 
And then we see everybody else, especially when the reveal comes later. And so as they all continue to use the racial slurs, mm -hmm. there is a sort of a moral message in this combined with historical accuracy. I, I always have to think of what um, Samuel Jackson reportedly said to Leo DiCaprio on the set of Django, where Leo was really having a hard time with the racial slurs in his speech. And Samuel Jackson um, challenged him and said uh, something along the lines of basically, I know you think this is something new, new for you, but for us, this is just every other day. This is a Tuesday. Okay. So, you know, this film requires that to take place and get over yourself and deliver this line in the way it needs to happen. Not for a moment suggesting that Samuel Jackson speaks on behalf of all black people or all African-Americans, but just the idea of, you know, everybody who signed up had read the script and and knew what was coming down, exactly. down, down, down yes. the pipe and therefore agreed with the content they were seeing on the pages. Yep. Yeah. You're right. I think it was that. What was I? Because I left off where she got this stew in her face. I do remember that. <laughs> That's right. Give me a second. Yeah. So Ruth is angered and loses trust in Warren, saying that it must be true what people say that you can't trust black people. <laughs> Warren asks Ruth yeah. if he hurt his feelings, and Ruth says yes. Uh, you gonna say something? Yeah, uh, I mean, this is the part where I said he's the good guy. This isn't this isn't a great line here. Um, no, because he not. does he does sort of um, uh, make a blanket statement to cover an entire uh, ethnicity, and it's not a good one. Um, but he's he is legitimately hurt because he, this is the one thing in this world where I mean, he's a bounty hunter. He believes in nothing, but he believed in this letter, and to find out that he's been used by this letter, to find out this letter is a device. Uh, which Samuel Jackson reminds him of, which which Warren reminds him and says, hey, it got me on that wagon, didn't it? And he needed to find ways to, and it's a really interesting counter speech. You know, this letter helps me disarm white people to make myself approachable. How basic, I mean, it doesn't say this, but by, 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 by placing your hero in my pocket, I get favor and I stop becoming, uh, you know, a, a scary minority and I become instead someone with whom you now have a communal link with. Mm -hmm. And so as much as, and I feel both of these arguments simultaneously, I feel because as the audience, we are, we are, um, we are John Ruth. We are disappointed. This letter is not real. I was disappointed. This letter wasn't real. I had this, I was like, wow, this is a great story. And then to find out it's just a story and I can't trust it. I went, oh, that's really disappointing. I wanted this to be real. And so I'm with John Ruth. But when he gives his explanation, I go, that's actually kind of a fair point. Without this, without having something that makes him special, does he get on 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 the carriage? And probably not. So it's it's a wonderfully positioned moment. Whereas the audience, I'm not sure whose side I'm on. Yeah, I also, to <clears throat> piggyback off of that, there's also, I feel, a lot of mind games happening in this entire film with people and, and trust and things that are said that uh, some things are kind of like ambiguous to the, to the audience and, and aren't really forthright or outcome, like aren't really resolved before the film's over. It's just, yeah. it's, it left you up you know, to your own interpretation almost. Um, I, I just feel like it happens a lot going on uh, throughout the film um, this year. Cause do they actually say, do we know for sure 
that the Lincoln letter was BS or yeah, I'm pretty sure just messing with his head and with that too. You know what I mean? I I actually do truly believe it was B. I I wanted it to come back as real, but it is, uh, no, it is absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So moving on from that, um, Warren rebuts by saying that Ruth cannot understand what it is like to be a black man faced with America. Warren says that black people are safe when white people are disarmed and the letter disarms white people sets them more at at ease. He says, so Ruth asks, is it, uh, is it no Ruth says it is still a dirty trick to him. Warren points out that got him on Ruth's stagecoach. Yeah. So Mannix says that the letter wouldn't have worked on him. Daisy says that he spit on it, and Mannix congratulates her for it. Warren brings Stan- Sanford food and asks to join him. Um, and then this is where uh, Bob starts. Uh, he opens up the piano and starts slowly playing uh, Silent Night on the yeah. piano here. So, yeah, the events that I'm about to talk about is set to just Bob playing Silent Light on the piano in, in the, the corner of the room. Find out what we find out later. Is that a message? What? what, what? He was to, he, he's told to quite clearly keep his mouth shut. Uh, in the in Chapter 4, we find out the messages when everybody else gets here. You, you, you just keep your mouth shut. And the song he plays is Silent Night. Hmm. Just a thought. Or is it just supposed to be this incongruent huh. soundtrack to a terrible story that's about to be told? Yeah, it is. Um, I've never thought about that before, but you might be on to something, dude. Seriously. Huh. I do okay, okay. occasionally. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's funny, too, because I thought that this moment here was what was going to turn you away from the film altogether. Because it is it is low with this shit that he says to Yeah. To yeah. yeah. So Sanford says yes, and Warren puts a gun next to Sanford. Then Warren reveals to Sanford that he murdered his son, Chester. Well, because a couple of times we'd had false starts where his name is almost delivered to, uh, oh, I forget the old man's name here for a second here. Sanford. To Sanford, yeah. And um, he, he stopped a couple of times, and he says that he made a mention the son came here in search of fortune, the same wording we heard on the stagecoach. So I'm going, okay, I'm putting two and two together here. Thank you very much. And then we go into the uh, into the speech. So I just thought it was, it was nicely foreshadowed, if you will. Okay. Uh, so yeah, he's talking, he's, um, yeah, he says uh, Sanford, uh, he's, yeah, murdered San- Chester Smithers, Smithers, Sanford Stone. Smithers, yeah. The wording here is Sanford Sons makes me think of Sanford and Son. For oh, Sanford reason. and Son. It's blah, messing blah, me up blah, talking. Blah, 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 I know, exactly. <laughs> Just, I actually have never seen. I've never seen a, a a frame of of that show, but I know that theme song like no one's yeah. Business. Yeah, wah, 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 wah. yeah. It's just a great. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so, uh, uh, in retaliation for the latter trying to kill him, most likely for the bounty. So Warren taunts Sanford with the humiliating details of his son's death. 
claiming that he was forced to march naked in the snow for what do you say about two hours? He, I think he's what he said. Yeah. And he make he says that uh, makes him perform fellatio to him uh, be, after he begs him for a blanket to something to stay warm and uh, kills him. In a fit of rage, Sanford reaches for a gun to shoot Warren, but Warren swiftly draws his gun and shoots Sanford dead instead, much to Mannix's dismay. Now, you went really short with you. Like, this is played yeah. out for several minutes. This is a, yeah, with, I was going to stop with, and go back, but yeah. Okay, go on. <laughs> please do. No, no, no. I, I, whatever you were saying, go okay. on. I, I was just so, saying so I was, was going to do this. The graphic detail and the joy in which um, yeah. Samuel Jackson uh, warned says in in retelling this story. Because um, we see it, too. And we, yeah, because it's one of the few times we actually get cutaways to, yes. to these stories that are being told. We see a flashback. Yes. And so we see it. And I imagine we're seeing, in essence, what um, Smithers is seeing in his in his in his head as the stories be quote two options number one we're seeing it in Smithers's head option two That's we're good. seeing yeah, it okay, yeah. in uh in in Warren's head as he remembers it it's one of those uh, two we don't get any clarity on that I think it might be uh, Sanford's because just because Smithers because of just the way yep. you get the shot of uh of um. Warren like maniacally laughing as shit's going on and it's uh, yeah so it's probably too it's probably in Smithers head like <sighs> to a military man yeah. to a military racist man I mean we this is also in in the pre-determiner to this we have discovered that Smithers uh took prisoners of war gave them uniforms made them switch to the um confederate army and then left them to starve and 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 they died. So there's bad blood. They almost came to blows earlier in the evening, which was then referred to as, "Oh, we're just talking politics." It's like this is this is the same politics. This is a yeah. shared history, and yeah. they have shared a battlefield, and that's how um, Warren gets the access to be, even begin this story. Um, so to a father, hearing about your son, your son's last days in this time frame, uh, to hear about uh, an act. Uh, as such, um, especially yeah. with obviously his intense dislike of um, the black community. <laughs> um, I think there's no worse telling of a last few moments for this old man to have. And therefore he picks up the gun. Now the question is, does he pick up the gun because he's angry? I think that that's part of it, but does he pick up the gum because he doesn't want to live with the knowledge of us anymore? And I think that's also in there as well. Uh, I think it's obviously, more anger. I obviously, think it's all both. been set up for this end point is that Warren's going to shoot the old man from the minute he right, puts the gun right. down. I think it's both, but more heavily on the anger side, personally. So the question I, I have for you, Ed, is is the story real or is this a Lincoln letter? I think it's a Lincoln letter. I think it's a Lincoln letter. I've, I've always thought that. Yeah. Because yep, it comes absolutely. too soon. It comes too soon after the reveal of a Lincoln letter. Yeah. So now we have to go. Everything we see grants him something. He's very good with words as, as a way to grant him what he needs. And what he needed yep. was to avenge those fallen soldiers who died under the command. And he needed a reason for everybody. So. And he, he can't murder. It's murder if he just shoots right. him. Yep. Self-defense, different story. And he, he gets is. away with it. Yep. Yeah, I, I've always thought that because of that and, and just, yeah, 
he's, he's got an alibi self-defense, like you said. So yeah, after this happens, um, we see Bob close the piano as the film cuts to black. Now, when I saw this in the theater at the roadside, the roadshow presentation, this is when we got our intermission, but. Oh, it's here. Yeah. Cause this is, oh. when, this is when chapter three ends. Chapter three is over. Bob closes the piano and it also cuts the black. And then oh, I thought it, chapter three ended on a this, different note. My bad. Yeah, this is how it, yeah, chapter three ends, and then it oh, says okay. chapter four, Don Ragu's got a secret. That's okay. See, I thought it was at the end of that chapter, the place to cut. Still a good place. I mean, it's it's a very dramatic moment. Surprisingly, Sheriff Mannix is very quiet throughout that whole story. I was thinking that too, this viewing. Because Mannix, we, 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 obviously you can't touch on everything because there's so much dialogue in this film. But Mannix is properly fanboying out over Meaton Smithers. Yes. Oh, yeah. This Very is his hero. Top manner. It's hilarious when he and, first introduces himself. Yeah, he's like, if there was a cell phone, he'd be asking for a selfie. He'd be tweeting oh, out yeah. about this. And, and Smithers says how much of a high regard he has for Mannix's father. And then this whole thing about fathers and sons and the Confederate. Uh, it, he's just quiet. Nope. Really interesting. <laughs> I think the line he says to him is, son, I didn't know your father, but I sure respected him or something. Yeah, something like and, he, and he said that respect would have meant the world to him. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right, so chapter four, Don has got a secret. Daisy asked to play the guitar. Roof says, sure. There's a lot of trained musicians in this gang. Yeah. They must just have like band practice on Wednesday There's a story behind. There's a story coming up behind this scene too. So, oh, it's, it's a great scene. Yeah, then the, we we have a narrator at for the first. Well, it's, only time it's Quentin in, this movie. in it. It's Quentin. I was going to ask you if you knew who that, that was. It's Quentin. I was himself. waiting for my. I was waiting for my. Because at first I thought that. Uh, oh, what's his name? I thought that Michael Madsen's character, because his hat's down when we first get in there. I thought, oh, here's yeah. our requisite Quentin Tarantino cameo, and then was glad to see it wasn't. But then I was like, when is he going to get in on this? And then I heard the voice note. There he is. Yep, there it is. Exactly. He's always got to fit himself in some way, somehow. So he reveals that while everybody was distracted by Sanford's death, an unseen character wearing black gloves, as all characters wear, slipped poison into the brewing coffee, which only Daisy witnessed. So Ruth and Obi drank the coffee. Damie sm- Damie. Daisy smiles knowingly. So she, she sings a beautiful song on the guitar. Uh, plays it pretty well. Uh, when Ruth comes over, he breaks the guitar. Time's over. Turn around. The look of shock on her face is 100% genuine because that was an that was a, an actual like 1870 guitar 
fall it's over 100 years old more well, that the props master forgot to switch out so russell broke the actual antique guitar wow. shocked to everybody oh i heard about this i've seen this on like a what culture video yeah it's legit and they, they look, borrowed yeah. the guitar and then they had to apologize and do something because yeah he was definitely not supposed to do this yep Jeez. Oh, <laughs> so yeah it's crazy i'll tell you what though makes the scene <laughs> Um, because she finishes the song and he asks her if it's got one more verse and uh, she closes she kind of not the not the actress but but Daisy it feels like changes the lyrics to the song and it goes now day and night the irons clang and like poor galley slaves toil and toil and when we die we must fill dishonored graves by and by I'll break my chains into the bush I'll go and you'll be dead behind me John when I get to Mexico so she's calling her shot here and playing into every bit of John's paranoia and his absolute assertion in his spirit that gotcha. he is someone is going to rescue her. There is someone there she is working in cahoots with. Who is it going to be? And he got lulled for a minute when he said, oh, it's a pretty song. And he, for a moment, he humanizes her. And in that moment, it's back to whatever it is. He drags her back over. Is this when he drags her back over? Yeah. And puts the cuffs back on? I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cuffs her back to the table at least or something. I don't know. Yeah. So um, <laughs> in a film that's full of, especially we've just come back from, you know, Smithers dying and then to go for this song and to, and, and to hold f- almost entirely on the shot where Jennifer Jason Lee's in the foreground. And as someone who plays a little guitar, I'm going, it looks like she's really playing the song. She learned it all. She, yeah. she did. She actually did learn it. Um, those like those like finger hammers are her. legit. I was going, wow. And you don't see so. that too often. I mean, I'm not a guitar player myself. I'm a drummer, but that, that whenever I see someone playing all by finger and it's not a bass like a guitar yeah. that way, that's just that's pure talent. But, yeah, like nothing know. but res- nothing respect there. Well done, yeah, Jennifer no, Jason. Exactly. Lee. So yeah, so Mannix is about to pour himself a cup of coffee when suddenly Ruth violently vomits blood all over the table. <laughs> Get to hell, John. <coughs> Tell him Daisy sent you. <laughs> Just as Mannix is about to take a set. And then we look over and OB, he's like, what's going on? And suddenly he starts vomiting out blood and collapses onto all fours, just just vomiting just copious amounts of blood between him and OB. It's it's crazy this scene. Um shout out to the to Greg Nicotero for the props for the 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 uh just the, the effects and the, the blood in this scene. It's just so Ooh. visceral so it's, visceral. it's it's so insane this wasn't like your because we watch him drink it we watch him sit down and we think oh maybe he didn't drink enough of it to really because he throws the rest of it away doesn't he and you go oh yeah well maybe maybe he didn't drink enough of it 
<laughs> nope. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 crazy. And then she he like starts beating the shit out of her. He just takes her down and starts hitting at her as she's laughing. And then he starts all of a sudden vomiting blood all over her face while she's down on the ground. I mean, he it's just he's going out with a bang for sure. And then he's about he's he's on his tail end of, of just death. It's 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 not looking good for Ruth. And Daisy oh. says uh, she just mocks him, saying, "When you get to hell, John, tell Daisy sent you." Yeah. And then uh, tries to kill her, only for her to reach for his pistol and shoot him dead. So, yeah. what couple a death. thing, yeah, exactly. What a death. Um, I want to point out that score, that music playing in this moment. It's kind of like a bass, it sounds kind of like that. I heard that, um, Maricone, his score for this, um, some of the actual pieces were actually taken from unused pieces from the thing back in, in 1982. Cause he did oh, the okay. music for that movie as well. John Carpenter's the thing. But isn't Kurt and Russell I, on that? Yes, he is. <laughs> so weird. And, and I want to say that this has to be just from the sound of it. It sounds like it's something taken from an eighties horror, horror movie. So yeah it's something i wanted to point out and just it's it's such a brutal scene and especially when he's on top of her just vomiting blood all over her face and she's laughing yeah i know this ain't your cup of tea but uh i'll tell you i was floored by this um a because the 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 visceral nature of it but it's tarantino so i'm not totally unexpected it right right but more it's the i've never seen no country for old men I have one of my favorite movies. I love yeah, there you it. Oh yeah, I, I, I already read it. And um, there's a like you think you're all in and you know whose story it is, and then they just go ahead and shift on you, and you're like, "What? This is like that." And I'm left going, "Okay." And I'm literally trying to recalibrate my head towards this. I'm like, because at first I'm almost rejecting this. Like, surely he's got to, maybe he'll mm-hmm. survive this. And then they shoot him. I'm like, "Okay, well he's clearly not." So where do we go from here? And I'm just completely confused because the most interesting character, maybe one of two, maybe maybe uh, Warren as well, but the one who I felt was driving the story is now dead. So I don't even know where we go from here. And it's, it's this great moment where, again, I think we're put in Warren and um, Maddox's shoes as to going, we're just as lost as they are. That's a brilliant. That's brilliant when we can relate to a character so thoroughly. Yeah, it's definitely a. Uh a moment where the movie just pulls the rug from underneath of you and just it's like because you're you're watching this thinking that Kurt Russell is going to make it to the end at least as one of the main characters and then we're, we just come back from you know the halfway point you know we're at the beginning of chapter four and boom he's he's done it's kind of like uh kind of funny enough a Kurt Russell movie kind of like executive decision with Steven Seagal how he oh, dies in like the first oh, half hour of that movie. Oh, hang on. Yeah, yeah I did see that. <laughs> you know? So, all right. So with Ruth and OB dead, Warren lines up the rest of the lodgers at gunpoint and throws the key to Ruth's handcuffs into the fire, ensuring that Daisy cannot escape. Warren determines that Mannix could not have poisoned the coffee since he was about to drink it himself. So he gives Mannix a spare gun. He gives, I love it when he gives him a gun. He's like, oh, you're going to get it now. It's, it's over the topness the way he talks yeah. in this movie. I love Walter Goggins. So but your two characters who are on such, uh, you know, ideologically polarized 
positions are now having to sort of work together um, to sort of figure this thing out. They are yep. the only people each other can ironically trust. You're right. Because the people they suspect are absolutely in cahoots with Daisy. Which, which is wild because that's the one thing that, that um, um, John Ruth couldn't do. John Ruth couldn't bring himself to really trust anybody. And now sort of Warren and, and Mannix kind of realize they have to. And it's the situation mm -hmm. they're in. But quickly right. realize I've got a piece of solid logic. I know I can trust you. And this is the moment. Now we're going to go ahead and walk with that because we have that as a fact in our head. And it's uh, it's it's a strong setup for the final third of the film. I agree. Uh, Warren then explains that Bob's story about Manny entrusting the place to him cannot be true since she hated Mexicans. He saw he also mind uh, he also finds a dried blood stain on one of the armchairs and hypothesizes 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 <laughs> that Bob murdered Minnie. He knows, however, that Bob cannot be the person who poisoned the coffee since he was playing the piano at the time. He was. So he shoots and kills Bob because he knows he was involved in killing Minnie, only to be shot in the groin from underneath the floorboards. You killed OB? He is worth 10 of you. Warren, can I kill him? Say adios to your huevos. I knew going into this movie that Shannon Tatum was in it. Hell, his name's in the opening credits. I saw it on the opening credits. And wouldn't this have been so much better if they pulled the seven and not put him in the opening credits and exactly. just made him the first name afterwards? Because Take I was waiting out. for Shannon Tatum to, to, to show up. And then you see suddenly the camera just pan down and yeah. it's like, say, say, uh, say goodbye to huevos or whatever he yeah says. and so instead i was going oh it's channing tatum where i should have been going wait what who is and i should have had that overload where instead it was just like like this easter egg got paid off and i went hey there he is it's like if you're showing someone this movie for the you know pure reason of channing tatum being in it it's like you're kind of hoping and praying that they don't watch the opening credits and or they like, yeah. kind of miss his name like don't 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 notice that he's in this because like it, they do a good job of hiding him for the you know the front half and then like all of a sudden you, bam here like he is if i go back to seven for a minute and go and you say and kevin spacey at the opening credits and then we're an hour in you're like where's kevin you just go where's kevin spacey haven't yep. seen kevin spacey yet where's he at so <laughs> if there's one thing i could change it would be I imagine it was like an agent's call, but just the the art of creating a narrative, it would just been so much easier if you just omitted his name from that opening sequence. Yeah, Especially I, I agree. The, 
and Channing Tatum. Like, you know, he got the sort of, you know, and Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury. He got that treatment at the end of end of this and just draws even more. You may as well put an asterisk around his name instead of brackets. <laughs> he'll be by later. Like it was right. just this idea of I know he's going to be important because they gave him that spot. And then by not seeing him, I'm expecting him. Yeah. Yeah, because this was when his career was just everywhere and he was just in so i felt like he was in a lot of things a lot and he started of projects to make better choices he's, he's he's yeah. not just doing the meathead roles now he's starting to find breath where are you at on the 21 jump street movies love 21 jump street movies good love them actually for all, i was gonna, i was in this draft about favorite reboots and all that stuff and i couldn't get 21 jump street in because the, the argument was it was never a film before it was a tv series so it was more of an I, adaptation I than it okay. was a reboot right but i was i was totally going for my first pick was starship my next pick was gonna be 21 jump street because i those things i, I haven't seen the to be honest with you i don't not familiar with the originals at all but i love 21 jump street as a way to take what my can conception of a let's go back to high school movie is and flip it on its head and the jock be yeah it's just it's it's this wonderful self-awareness and he also just pairs really well off of um jonah hill jonah hill thank you i don't know where i went there but off of jonah hill they're a great double act who i'd like to see more done of i think they could be almost in a way this generation's like better at it but they could have been this generation's david spade and chris farley all right so chapter five the four passengers so earlier that morning, we see a stagecoach arriving at the haberdashery containing the four passengers of Bob, Mowbray, Gage, and Jody. So they are driven by six-horse Judy, who, can, who comes from New Zealand. Yeah, her New Zealand, I knew who Zoe, Zoe Bell is the actress or stunt woman who plays um, Judy here. Okay. Uh, right off the bat, and I saw her, I was like, oh, is she going to have her accent or not? And sure enough, she kept her New Zealand accent. So yeah. Uh, they are met by Charlie outside Minnie's. Charlie, a black man, stays outside and helps the carriage driver with his horses before he travels on. So Judy leads the passengers inside, uh, introduces them to Minnie Mink. Job. It's worth mentioning that Judy is Janet Tatum, for people listening. Uh, Minnie is shown to be a light-skinned black woman, perhaps in her 30s, and is there with a younger black woman named Brenda, who is cooking. So two older white women, I'm sorry, two older white men, Sweet Dave and Sanford from before, are playing chess by the fire. Uh, the crew makes small talk for a few minutes before violently, ma violently, violently massacring everybody in the lodge except for Sanford. Uh, Charlie comes in from outside just when his this is all happening and is shot by Bob in the door. Uh, Bob, this is how the door gets broke. Uh, didn't yeah. even talk about that earlier. The door is broke. The running you know, joke. Use, yeah, they got to use nails and, and yeah. board to keep it from the wind blowing it open. <clears throat> so yeah, so that's that's how the 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 door got broke. So Charlie. Uh, so he goes fleeing outside. Mowbray asks in Spanish if they should perhaps keep Sanford alive to create the illusion of a more uh, lively, lively setting. So they agree to try it. Jody talks to the old man while the crew starts cleaning up. Gage goes out to kill Charlie that he finds hiding in the, uh, the, 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 the pot, the bathroom or whatever, you want know, the toilet outside by the, the house or the, the, the cabin the outhouse if you will outhouse thank you 
knew there was a word for that. And <laughs> shoots him in the throat with a shotgun while he's begging for his life. And then we see Jody explaining to Sanford that they are preparing to ambush Ruth to rescue his sister, Daisy, and that they will not kill him if he agrees to keep quiet about their plan. So, of course, Sanford agrees, and the bandits all prepare for Ruth to arrive, throwing the bodies down the well, hiding guns around the lodge. Jody hides in the basement, implying that he was the one who later shot Warren in the crotch from under the floorboards. Um, So, chapter six, the final chapter. If I had to say, six-horse Judy, could she be a nicer human being? Like Everybody else were like, well, welcome to the nicest place that ever was. We're all super nice, and so are you. Yeah, she's really unbe like that. They she were all sickly with- sweet, and Six Horse Judy was the sweetest of them all. Yeah, very lively, and she's exactly yeah. like that with her character in Tarantino's um, Death Proof, which okay. was a part of that Grindhouse double feature from 2007. That okay, I'm, I don't know if it was when we were talking before the recording or during the recording itself. We were talking about that gap after uh, uh, yes, Kill Bill. That was during the recording, yeah. And and okay, so. I forgot all about death. It's my least favorite Tarantino movie, but death through death proof grindhouse, the double. Yeah. Yep. That was 2007. So have you seen that? No, uh, no, those are not. I I took one look at that and went, that's not really my thing. (laughs) Oddly enough, it had Kurt Russell. So he does this though, doesn't he? He finds his stunt driver. Mike, he he finds his peeps and he goes ahead and he makes sure he keeps bringing them back. Right. Okay. Like show me, give me, give me Tarantino and and Samuel Jackson any day of the week, and throw in Tim Roth, and throw, yeah, all these people. Just, just yeah, let's just do his greatest hits. I'm 100 percent up for that. Okay, so all right, um, so you know, Black Man, White Hell is the name of the last chapter here. Uh, we cut back to present uh, with Warren in agonizing pain. He's uh, confined to a bed while he and a wounded Mannix hold guns on the surviving lodgers, Don Bergu, Gage and a mortally wounded Mowbray. So Warren tells Mannix his genitals are destroyed and he thinks that he will bleed, he, he's going to bleed to death. So they got to flush Judy out of the basement. Uh, so they do that easily by threatening to kill Daisy. Um, so he finally agrees to come out with his hands up. And when he slowly comes out, him and Daisy kind of like make eye contact. They share a couple words. Uh, I think one of them. There's like a little childhood insult to the other. And then out of nowhere, the back of his head gets blown off by uh, Warren. Worry about these owl hoots. That bushwhacking nut shooter in the basement. All right! You fella in the basement, you either give up by the time I count to three. I shoot Damagoo in the head. One, two. No, 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 don't shoot in the head. I'm coming up. Hold on there, you bushwhacking sack shooter. You just open the door. We tell you when to come up. Now throw out your pistol. Talk to bed. Betty got another. Now throw out your other pistol. 
I ain't got another pistol. Well, you better shit another pistol at your ass. Because if you don't throw one up here in the next two seconds, we're going to kill this bitch. See? Told you. Now, with your hands where we can see them, slowly come on up. How you doing, dummy? Better. Now I see your ugly face. How you like that? You bushwhacking castrator? What are you doing? He was getting up! It took him too long, so I done it for him. So, Shannon Tatum, uh, nice knowing you, buddy. Thanks for the uh, 10 minute extended cameo. Yeah. And that is it. He is out. Exit stage left. So Don Regu is very upset, scolds Mannix for working with the black man. She then attempts to strike a deal with Mannix, explaining that her brother was the leader of a notorious gang and that 15 of his men are in waiting at Red Rock. Don Regu says that these men will hunt down Mannix if he kills her, whereas she will call them off if he kills Warren instead. Manix tells Warren Domingue has nothing to sell but to humor him as he listens to Domingue's offer. They count up the bounties that Manix could collect. Bob revealed to be Marco the Mexican with a bounty of $12,000. And Mowbray, really Pete Hickox, with a bounty of $15,000. Gage, really Grouch Douglas, who has a bounty worth ten grand. Um, Pete Hickox. Hickox is Michael Fassbender's character's name from Inglorious Bastards. And I have I have good authority that these characters are obviously related since they're in the Tarantino verse. Yeah, I mean he did that with Michael Madsen's character in Red Reservoir Dogs and uh Vinny Vega in Pulp Fiction, didn't he? So there is this yeah, kind yeah. of thing he does. The Vega Brothers, that that, that long rumored movie that was long rumored years. Oh, the prequel we all want. They're way too old now, unfortunately. Watch them announce it next month. <laughs> yeah, probably. Can you imagine that? We'll just, we will just uncanny valley it all. <laughs> Travolta will revive one set, and they'll be like, "Which head piece? Which hair piece? Y'all want me to wear this one?" Yeah. <laughs> uh so yeah. Uh, Don Regu explains that they cannot collect the bounties if they kill her since the gang will kill them. So she says that the gang will sack the town. So if Mannix as sheriff wants to protect his people, he should spare her life. Warren shoots Don Regu in the foot out of nowhere. And Hickox tries to convince Mannix again that they can forgive him for uh, you know, what he has done if he kills uh, Warren. Uh, Warren shoots Hickox in the leg and is interrupted when Gage reaches for a pistol that he had stashed under the table. Uh, Mannix and Warren shoot him dead. And a lot of shooting going on. A lot yeah. of shooting. And it's, it's the finale. It's the climax, of course. So Warren tries to shoot Domingue, but his gun is out of bullets. So Warren asks Mannix for his pistol. Mannix smiles and sits down. 
he asked Donahue about the offer. He kills Warren. They would just wait for two days, and then he gets the bounty for Oswaldo and Gage. Donahue ascends. Then Mannix asks about Jody's uh, Jody's bounty since he is worth fifty thousand dollars. Warren says Mannix. Warren asks Mannix if he is about to make a deal, and Mannix says they're just talking. Donahue says that he is being greedy and that she must. Take that body since Judy has children. Yeah, take his body since he has children. Okay, so Mannix goes over to the, goes over the terms again before looking back at Warren. He turns back to Domingo and says, "No deal." Domingo says that he is making a big mistake and that the gang will come and kill him. Did you says, think he was going to at this point? Do you think he was going to the double cross, or there was one last reveal to come? Any of that sort of stuff? Dead honest, when I saw this that night in theater for the first time, I had no clue what he was going to do. I, was I thought fence. we were going to get it one last reveal that he really wasn't the sheriff after all, and there was something else. I thought we were going to have one more level. And I'm not disappointed that we didn't, uh, but I, I was sitting there going, oh, shoot, we're going to have one more. And then, that no, it worked. Should, the, that would have really the, worked. It would have, but it would have fulfilled the idea that, 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 um, that Ruth was right to 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 doubt him from the start, and this is like Ruth gets it wrong as many times as he gets it right, and I love that everybody's wrong about Mannix. Yeah, because, I mean, because he's from minute one, he says I'm the new sheriff, and he really is the new sheriff. Yeah, he's the he only one in the film. He's the only one who tells the truth the whole movie. Yeah, that's even right. even the the Lincoln letter and all that. So he's you know. You know, so we've had Samuel Jackson license. He's the only one, Walton Goggins, who tells the truth the entire film. And I love it because he's the one we're told from minute one. He's obviously lying. Don't yeah. trust this one. Yeah, you're right. Um, Mannix uh, says that in order for him to be afraid, he would have to believe that those 15 men existed. So, again, stories left and right, which yeah. he doesn't believe. Warren laughs. Mannix says that. Douglas poisoned the coffee and points out that Don Ryu didn't say anything as he was about to drink the coffee, showing that she didn't care about his life. So he says that she is a liar and is surely just saying that she needs in, she needs in order. I'm sorry. She needs to in order to escape being hanged. And so, I, I love this because all he's being asked to do is roll over on Warren which we yeah, would be led to that, believe he should have find it really, really easy to do for the ideological things they have. But it comes down in the end to how have they treated him versus how have others treated him? And she was going to let Mannix die, whereas um, Warren could have shot Mannix and when he had them all lined up, but he chose to go, no, I know what you've done. So they both value truth and action in the other one. And therefore we have this most... Um, unexpected alliance of, of, of their ideologies are actually really quite similar despite what they appear to be at the start of the film. So I loved this moment. It's a good way of putting it really. Thank you. So, um, what was I? <laughs> it was so good. I lost my place. <laughs> Dom, uh, so Don Ragu didn't say anything as he was about, uh, I said already. So Don Ragu. Is he excited that Don Ragu knew he was about to drink the coffee and said nothing? Yeah, okay, here we go. So uh, he says that he suspects that what remains of Jody's gang is lying dead on the floor. Domingo replies that Jody led an army of men, but Mannix interrupts her and says that his father led an army, 
a renegade army fighting for a lost cause, 40, I'm sorry, 400 men who followed because of their respect for his command. Warren nods appreciatively. Then Manic says he doesn't feel so good, collapses onto the floor. <laughs> Manic's fit. He's he essentially faints due to his wound. Yeah. So Daisy cuts Ruth's handcuffed arm oh, off with a knife. This, this is intense. Yeah, I again, I totally forgot going to this again I, that this even happened because we yeah. see that the arm dangling as she's being hanged coming up here. It's like, what yeah. the fuck? Oh, that's right. That's that's Ruth's arm. Oh. That's okay. <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, she goes to reach for the gun that Douglas dropped on the floor. Manic suddenly wakes up or reveals himself to have been playing possum and shoots Daisy, wounding her. And as he prepares to shoot her again, Warren convinces him to spare her so that they can hang her just as Ruth wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, since Ruth saved their life, they can act out his one last wish to see Donbergu hanged. So they do that. They're about they're on their dying <laughs> breath, all bleeding well, out, but they're gonna do pull as much as they can. But we we, we do sort of yada 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 over how they got her up there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, I mean, we just cut to the rope pulling. <laughs> The state of that they're in, the two of these guys. I mean, yeah, yeah, I don't, yeah. it happens though. So, yeah, it, it, absolutely, it happens. Darmagu is hanged from the rafters of the lodge. Mannix pronounces it as his first and final act as sheriff of Red Rock. But the last thing that best uh, your goddamn Chris Mannix. I may have misjudged you. Now we've come to the part of the story where I blow your goddamn head off. No, 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 don't shoot her. Why the hell not? John Ruth. Now, John Ruth was one mighty, mighty bastard. But the last thing that bastard did before he died was save your life. We're gonna die, white boy. We ain't got no say in that. But there is one thing left we do have a say in. And that's how we kill this bitch. I say shooting's too good for her. John Roof could have shot her anywhere, anytime along the way. John Roof was the hangman. And when the hangman catches you, you don't die by no bullet. When the hangman catches you, you hang. You only need to hang mean bastards. <laughs> But me, bastards, you need to hang. (laughs) 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 As my first and final act, as the sheriff of Red Rock, 
I sent it to you, Domagoo, to hang by the neck until death. And Mannix is left lying on top of Warren, but then he drops down off the bed and onto the floor. And the two men delight in seeing Domagoo hang in accordance with Bruce's final wishes and the law. Mannix asks Warren if he can read the letter. So that's how we're going to end this blood-covered letter, reading it out loud. Yeah. In it, Abraham Lincoln praises Warren for his service and expresses the belief that racial progress is being slowly made in America. Mannix remarks on the final line of the letter, old Mary Todd is calling, so I guess it's time for bed. And it's a nice touch, and Warren says thanks. And Mannix crumbles the letter up, throws it away, and both men then await to die in their... Ultimate fate so left ambiguous, but it's uh doubtful they survive given that the wounds they've received and oh, yeah, you know, yeah, and the yeah. fact. So uh, it's funny because Warren said he used the letter to disarm uh man. <laughs> Let's get across the idea of it. He says that to a man who will later be disarmed. I don't know <laughs> if that's intentional. I really hope it is. Uh, as far as word, yeah. as far as word choice goes. But <laughs> actually, he didn't need the letter to disarm um Mannix. He just needed the the actual acts of, of of what he would do, and that's what built the bridge. And they actually l- laugh over the lie, but they they laugh in this almost brotherhood of the two of them having gone through yeah, this it, it experience together. And yep. it shows the letter was a fake representation of what they have achieved. The two of them in 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 the haberdashery. So it's a really nice juxtaposition of the lie, and the lie looks pretty. <laughs> Maybe not yeah. anymore. It's covered in blood, but that's the thing. In, or, in, in order for them to find this 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 kinship now, blood had to be spilled. They had to have a cause. So it, it's it, it, it's it's when it came back at the end, I thought it was this wonderful reintroduction of this. Um, I mean, really, it's nothing more than just than just a, a MacGuffin or a plot device. But uh, I, I thought it was it was it was really well done. No one crafts a, a narrative like like Tarantino when he's on, and he was on this week. Like a Chekhov's gun, whatever they say it is. Yeah, check Chekhov's Lincoln letter we got here. Yeah, there you go. And yeah, guys, that is the hateful eight from Quentin Tarantino. Uh, so let's go to the inbox real quick. Oh, what's in the box? What's in the fucking box? I got. I posted on Twitter for uh folks to join us uh, you know i do it every week before recordings now ask uh if you guys want to leave a comment or ask any questions to uh just leave it down below so i'm gonna pull it up and see if anyone's left anything since here we go all right got a few start with uh your next favorite movie so josh at your next favorite movie said Hope you talk about the next. The, hope you talk about the Netflix version. I haven't had a chance to sit and watch, so I'd like to know if it's worth it. Do you know what he's talking about? I do. Do you know what he means by that? No, I don't know. So I'm really quite. I, I watched the Netflix version, but I don't know what was unique about it. Did was it broken into four parts? Uh, like four episodes of a TV show or a miniseries? Oh no! Oh, hey, was no, it no, one I, movie? No, I just watched a movie. Okay, it might be different over there. Over yeah. here in, in, in the U.S. and Canada, um, or it might just be the U.S., uh, Netflix here, the version that's on there is they might have the actual film, but there also might be, um, there's also this version that's broken into four parts. It's um, oh. like a, like, like a miniseries. Yeah, like a miniseries. Sort of. Or, um, yeah. And it, 
I haven't sat down and watched it myself, so I really can't uh, say anything about it, Josh. Because I'm sorry, buddy. I hope I didn't let you down. I just I've always owned the film digitally, so I've never yeah. really needed to sit down. I know it's you know like 4K or whatever, but it it I, I never sat down and watched. There's no need for me personally because I own it. So yeah, you know, it why would, would I? I I think it would play well in chapters if you put one and two together. And then each one after that becomes its own chapter. I think, yeah, I think, it'd be, it'd, man, it would be an interesting viewing experience. But I would, the secret is then, I mean, is it any different if you just hit play next chapter or play next well, I think I think he's asking really if there's anything added or anything different about the actual film itself. And I do, uh, I, okay. because the, the roadshow uh, presentation that I'd stall seen in theaters actually included about six additional minutes of dialogue that the theatrical and the, the current version doesn't have. Can't remember what it was. I don't I have no idea for the life of me what was cut out or what was added. Um, but that's, that's, you know, the run times are different and, and that's, it's okay. not because of the overture. So yeah. Um, sorry, Josh. I honestly don't know the difference. Um, I, I'm aware of it. I know it's broken in the four p or four parts. I just I own the movie digitally, so I, I have no need to watch Netflix when I already have it on my Vudu account. So sorry, buddy. Next we have Green Shirt, who says, "I honestly think, from a narrative and structural viewpoint, that this is Tarantino's best script. It all fits together so well, and as long as it is, never feels flabby. It's up there." I'm not going to go all forthright and say it's my favorite script of his because I am a diehard fan of True Romance, a movie that he wrote in order to get film, uh, in order to get Reservoir Dogs made. That's right. And I, I'm a person, I've, I've always been a huge fan of that movie since it first came out when I was a kid. So, um, Realistically, I would argue his best script is either Hollywood or um, Glorious Bastards. But how about you? As far as writing goes, uh, in the sense of the most part, it plays out from a linear perspective. Yeah, I'll give you that. Uh, also, the, um, the 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 setup of of the haberdashery and the storm. Uh, allows a very uh, play-like atmosphere to approach as we've discussed and that allows for greater character development it allows for windows where certain characters mean more than others uh, so in that regard it's good there's something about pulp fiction and the way he plays with time and as a result um yep. like i said like he break he defies the rules of of of, of life and death <laughs> there's, there's just something in that which is which uh, i mean well, we a, we expect him the mess of time in a tarantino script now it's almost now, like a, but it, this is the this is the thing that set that up though isn't it so yeah i mean yeah. I, I, I can't I, yeah. I, I can't disagree you someone wants to say it's, it's the best script he's done sure i'm not gonna be able to talk me off that fence i totally understand why someone has that viewpoint I think for me, and I was probably getting caught up with some of the stylish aesthetic or some of the great monologues. Actually, that's the one thing I'll give Pulp Fiction. It's got some excellent monologues. Oh, yes, it um, does. Yeah. Uh, yep. that, become, that become pop culture references in and of themselves outside of the movie. So uh, I will give it to that, but I fully understand someone who wants to make that, that argument. Yeah, I, I'd put it in my top three. I just wouldn't say it's the, the very best, but it's up there. So. Yeah. 
Thanks for writing that. And finally, we have Phil Chat from my flat who says, do you think the ending Quentin Tarantino went with due to the original script leak was better or worse than his original intentions for the ending of the film? I'm on the fence. I like the killings being spaced out, but a full-on shootout at the end would have been epic. I don't quite know the details of the original ending. I do just know... I, I just know that um, the characters, so to speak, are, are different. There's people who had died are no longer and vice versa. Yeah, I'm just taking a quick little little gander. I saw that question upcoming and took a look. Um, I think if it's that giant shootout, then it becomes the thing that Tarantino, I mean, it happened in Django. And in a sense, you kind of have that same thing happen years later in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where like all it's, the killing happens. It's also how Reservoir Dogs ends. In oh, is it? Okay. So, I mean, the danger becomes if you do it too much, it almost becomes formulaic. So if the script leak forced Tarantino to pivot on that and go a little bit more of a staggered death schedule, if you will, mm -hmm. strange, strange statement to make, um, I think that's a win. And I, I, I so then I will argue that... Um, in response to film chat from my flat, I will say that I think it's better than the original intentions. Now I live in a, a universe where I don't have access to the other version of it in, in, in film form, but I like the chance for something to occur and then characters to react. I think reacting and reaction is just as important as action. And if it's just one, you know, um, ballet of death, so to speak. Um, I, I think you you lose some of the opportunity to not mourn, but to react to each death in turn. And it just becomes an overload, which can be fun. I watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in the cinema, and when everybody started dying, I started looking around the, to watch people's faces as they were reacting to, to, to that scene. I thought that was great fun. Oh, at the um, end? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, the ends. Yeah, the ends are Oh, the end. It was a riot. I'm just looking around at other people reacting to what they're watching on the screen. Yeah, exactly. Great. Yeah, uh, but there's a time for that, and they were they weren't nearly as developed in that. Like they were just a bunch of Manson low life kind of henchmen. In this film, every character had some purpose and some development about them. So to just have them all go out at once would have been, pardon the pun, overkill. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I agree with that 100. I'm I'm on the, I'm on the same boat as you for sure. Excellent. All right, guys. Box office receipts. In the operational funds box, we will deposit 250 thousand American dollars. You take it out. We put more in. I want receipts. All right. So my paper down here. All right. The Hateful Eight premiered December 7th, 2015 at the Cinerama Dome in Los Angeles, California, before being released on December 25th, 2015, Christmas Day from the Weinstein Company. Uh, opening weekend box office, even though it was limited, it opened up to 100 theaters and it, it gained $4.6 million that first weekend. The following weekend, it went up plus not negative plus 240.7 percent adding 2300 screens roughly and bringing in 15.7 million dollars at the box office total gross was 155.8 million against a budget of 44 to 62 million dollars let's just call it 50 million average yep either way made money 
It's a modest Dude, hit. It's it's Tarantino. I mean, yeah. it, 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 he can do no wrong, and he's going to make you know his money. His movies are always going to be an event, and always going to bring in you know people and people bringing money and so on and so forth. So production budgets don't tend to take into account marketing that does exist, whatever that was. Um, and depending on the film, it can be half of the production budget to one and a half times the production budget. Uh, as we said, we didn't see tons of stuff for this. So I think I think it's you know it's Tarantino and it's it's got people in. I don't imagine it's what they were expecting the 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 intake no. to be. I imagine they were expecting more. Um, but it's um, it's 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 not a flop. It's just maybe a bit underwhelming as far as the overall financials go. Yeah, I mean, it was a profit, but it wasn't a. It was a modest profit. It wasn't like a huge home run. My my rule of thumb, like I always say, is take the budget, multiply it by two because of marketing and stuff yeah. like that. That's and that how I always do the idea, math. So. Exactly. So you know, let's just say for the hell of it, this made fifty five million or right around, give or take. I mean, it's the Weinstein's, but whatever. God knows what happened with that money, but it's the yeah. certain <laughs> of the day, and. His next film after this, which would be uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, made much more money. Was I think? I mean, the star power in that film is off the charts. Yeah, and that Pitt, was Pitt and, and that that became the whole marketing campaign. Brad Pitt and Leo, same film. That was the yeah. marketing. Yep. So yeah, and Al Pacino finally being in a Tarantino movie. People forget that Pacino was in that too. I was literally about to go. Tarantino's in that. Is he in one of the scenes in Italy? Is that what's going on? Who does who does Pacino play on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Oh, oh Pacino plays the um the, the producer with the the big like the Schwartz glasses. Um, he's on the yeah, poster right here. That's it. Yeah, yeah. He's he's the producer guy. I, I forgot his name. I haven't watched it in a while. Um, you see him in like two scenes. He's not like a huge character, but he's definitely you know it's Al freaking Pacino in a Quentin Tarantino movie. So. <laughs> Indeed. All right, so let's meet the cast. Hey, you guys. Everybody, focus up. Okay, all eyes here. I would like to announce that Ben and I are planning to produce a musical number from Godspell for the talent show tonight. <clears throat> I'm sorry, Ben is producing. I'm directing slash choreographing. I'm only speaking from personal experience, but if you can't carry a tune, don't come into the audition environment and waste our time. For serious, okay? Okay, and bring a lot of movement clothes, aka jazz shoes, dance belts, lycras, et al. And seriously, FYI, you guys, this is not an excuse to get out of your regular activities. This is an excuse to do some good musical theater. So be prepared, be enthusiastic, and leave your bullshit attitude and baggage at the door because we don't need it. So film stars Samuel L. Jackson as Major Marquis Warren. I mean, we could sit here and talk about Sam Jackson till the cows come home, but it's it, this is a guy who, if he never made another movie, he it he's he's got such a filmography that's like, yep. that, that yeah. <laughs> Yeah, What's I mean, your favorite I, I, Sam Jackson movie? Oh, jeez. Uh, I don't want to be boring and say Pulp Fiction, but it might be Pulp Fiction. Um, Pulp, Fic Pulp Fiction's his story. Pulp Fiction's his story over at his Vincent Vegas. He's a guy who has a... Actually, I get to teach Pulp Fiction, so it's one of those ones I know really intimately. Um, That's good. It's awesome, you know, he, man. He has like he has like 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 a whole arc that's unique to him, and it kind of coming to the end of this and going, I want more than this. Which of course Vincent doesn't understand, and he's very much the hitman philosophizer, if you will. Uh, so I'll go with that. I mean, he's got so much good stuff in there, but you know, 
you the problem with Samuel Jackson got so big that they kind of just let him be a caricature of himself when we get snakes in a plane and stuff like that. So yeah, and, and then the also the uh, was it the city band commercials he was doing recently. Um, <laughs> see, thankfully, stuff. being over yeah. here, I haven't seen those. But <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, he's he's so much. I mean, I mean, he's he's, he's Mace Windu for crying out loud. You know, yeah, like, oh, yeah, yeah. oh, I don't think so. You know, he gets these great lines. I'm just like, he got his you know, own purple lightsaber. He's Mace he's, Windu. Yes. Yeah, he's 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 Nick Fury. He's he's everything. Um, yeah, I guess that's me. How about you? Um, it, it, it fluctuates. I'm not really. Uh, I mean, if we're talking about movie, like the best movie he's been in. I'd say Goodfellas, but if, oh, he's such if, a small part in that. <laughs> I, but I'm talking about the movie though, like not. Oh, him, fair but, enough. But, but him though, like his his best performance. Um, not either. <sighs> time to kill. Oh, so he's good. good. Time to kill. Yeah. I won't give an honorable mention to Die Hard with a Vengeance. He is great. I was going to say, hey, Zeus from Die, uh, Zeus from Die Hard with a Vengeance. Zeus. He that was, whole, that's so Die Hard monologue. Die Hard never figured out how to top that or how to move on past that because they made uh, they made John Mc, McClane like 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 an equal to someone and it was it was a perfect dynamic and they just went well, yeah we don't know what to do now and they've made a good one since so there we go yeah I that 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 franchise Jesus Christ Die Hard with the Vengeance is my favorite film in that franchise and then yeah, after yeah, that sure. it just nosedived and absolutely. I mean, they filmed the next one here in Baltimore, right on the corner of uh, Live Free or Die Hard. Oh, it's um, dreadful. It's so bad. Um, a good. Have you seen A Good Day to Die Hard? No, no. Liam and I have a tradition. Every Christmas, we get together and watch a Die Hard movie. That's the next one. I'm really just wanting to Ooh. bail on, on the tradition this year. <laughs> oh, no. You got you to be a Do completionist. You, you can't. Oh, okay. It's terrible. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll get a I'll get a new one to a new tradition right afterwards, so we can watch his, it back uh, to back. His son's played by Jai Courtney, so have fun with that. Yeah, I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> Keyword try. Yeah. All right, so moving along, we got Kurt Russell as John the Hangman Ruth. What's your favorite Kurt Russell movie? You know what? I'm really struggling to think of my best Kurt Russell movie here. Why don't you go ahead and do yours, and I'll see if I can take a quick glance at filmography and see what jumps off at me. Um, uh, huge. Uh, uh, Big Trouble in Little China fan. Big Trouble in Little China. Either that or Backdraft. Those two movies are my my two favorites. You know what I like? Actually, I'm looking over this whole thing. You know what I really, really like? I'm looking if there's anything better than that. He, oh, he's... Come on. For all the crap I give it, he is good in Vanilla Sky. I'll give him that. There you go. Uh, but I'm going to give my vote to uh, one which I haven't seen in years and maybe it doesn't, it hasn't aged well if I go back and look at it. Tango Captain and Ryan. Cash. Tango and Cash, yes. Tango and Cash, where awesome. Stallone and Kurt Russell basically go, what would we usually be cast as? Let's swap. And so Stallone plays the nerdy accountant-like cop who does everything by, by the book, and Russell then plays the kind of like out-of-control Mel Gibson-like uh, cop on, on his side. And, and Jack I, Pounce is the villain. Jack Pounce is the villain. Yeah. It is, it is like a ridiculous 80s action flick, but I have a lot of fun with it. So I'm going to go take it. It's a fun movie. That's yeah. a really fun movie. Guilty pleasure. Totally. Yeah, there we go. That's true. Uh. And we got Jennifer Jason Lee as Daisy Domingo. Um, as far as she's concerned, I'm a huge Fast Times Ridgemont High fan. So that'll always be my favorite film of hers, probably, is Fast Times. You ever seen that? 
I've, I've never seen Fast Times at Ridgemont. Surprisingly, High. as for as big as that movie, it's funny. As for, for as big as that movie is, it I, I've heard a lot more people say like, "Oh, I've never seen that." You know, more than I've had people that have seen it. Surprisingly enough, so it's it, you know, it's not not going to fault you for that. It's it's more common than you think, yeah. which is funny because that movie is huge. It's like one of it the is. biggest. Everybody references it, films. Yeah. yeah. Um. Uh, for me, it would have to be as, as polar opposite from Fast Times as you can get. I'm going to go with Dolores Claiborne. That's a good one. Kathy yeah. Bates. Stephen Kathy King. Bates, and she's the daughter who's like, uh, I don't know yep. if I can trust my mom, uh, and has all these flashbacks about what life was like growing up, and it's all in the wake, I think, of her yeah. father's funeral or death. or oh, It's 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 a really – it's Stephen King, and it's just really yeah. – brooding let the moments breathe in in many ways the silence speaks very loudly in that film which i like that answer good one thank you all right and then just going down the rest of the list here without talking about favorites we got walton goggins as chris mannix got damian bashir as senior bob tim roth as oswaldo mulbray we got Mowbray got michael madsen as joe gage can i just say that michael madsen felt underused in this film he did. And yeah. I kind of took it personally because around this time, I it was when I met I met him back in 2013 at a convention that um, he was a part of. He did it with us. And um, I got a picture somewhere. I, got, I can find it. I'll put it up on social media. Really cool guy, though. For as, for as much as a bad rap as he gets personally, he was cool as shit the night that I hung out with him and met him. So. But yeah, um, underutilized in this movie. Couldn't agree more. I, I actually thought that he was going to have a bigger role at the, at the end of the day, but you know, I'm happy he's still getting work in big films like this, but uh, just a little bit more. I could use a little bit more Michael Madsen for this. Yeah, because when he showed up, I went, oh, Tarantino, oh, Michael Madsen, here we go. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, that's really all you got from him. All right. <laughs> it's all right. Like, even in that supporting uh, cast, like Tim Roth felt like he was the main player of that B group, and then... It's like he was just always in the corner waiting for something bigger to happen and just didn't ex- didn't didn't occur. Yeah, I, um, yeah. Sorry, um, I got Bruce Dern as General Sanford, Sandy Smithers, James Parks as OB, Zoe Bell as Six Horse Judy, Gene Jones as Sweet Dave, and of course Channing Tatum as Jody Domergo. Yeah. This is crew. Well, my friend, this is crew. But don't even think about it. You don't look like you could hang, Jermaine. The name's Jamal, and I'll fuck your crew up. Who are they? Who are they? All right, so it's directed by the man of the hour, Quentin Tarantino. It's produced by Richard Gladstein, Stacy Scher, and Shannon McIntosh. Written for the screen by Quentin Tarantino. Music by Ennio Marconi. Edited by Fred Raskin, who is a uh, who's replaced Sally Mink, who is Tarantino's uh, collaborator ever since Reservoir Dogs. Um, she unfortunately passed away, and Fred Raskin has since taken her place uh, for the last over the last decade. Um, started with Django, and then he edited that, and then of course this, and he's still to this day Tarantino's editor. Um, also goes about the, uh, cinematography, cinematography by Robert Richardson, who is also Tarantino regular. <laughs> um, 
and yeah, I feel like we've talked about Tarantino so much in this episode that we don't yeah. really have to go back into that anymore. So moving on to finger licking good. <laughs> finger licking good. And that is basically what's your favorite part of the movie? Finger licking good. Favorite part or moment? I would have to. Oh, there's two. I'm going to be cheating to both. Um, first one yep. would be where uh, Roof dies because I did not see it coming, and I love it when a movie makes me go, what? Um, generally, right. I'm kind of, as I watch movies, I think I'm working out secondary and tertiary kind of. They could go here, they could go here, they could go here, and mm-hmm. I never really thought they would kill off Kurt, Kurt Russell's character. And then the second one would just be um, Warren and Mannix uh, bonding over the Lincoln letter as they both sit there ready to bleed out. And I think that's just a beautiful kind of reconciliation of, again, we said just strange bedfellows who believe in doing the right thing, despite the fact that most of the movie, they couldn't agree on what that was when it counted, they, they could. And right. I like that. Yeah. Uh, for me, I've always said this since I first saw it, uh, the whole stagecoach stuff in the beginning, like that first opening 40 minutes or something like that until before they get to the, uh, haberdashery. Okay. Um, just because, the model, the, the dialogue is just so. Mm, I'm entertained, and I, I just before you know it, they they get to the haberdashery, and you see that there's already been 35, 40 minutes of the movie that's occurred since they've been in this stage stagecoach, and you don't even knew you don't, you don't even feel that time. You have no idea in your mind it's been only like 10, 15 minutes, when in reality, and that's how that's where the whole. 45 feeling like you know an hour and a half to two hour movie it does not feel its length at all i did not mind the runtime one bit in this no and the i i've i think that's where we get the most laughs and it's just kind of like a calm before the storm in in the stagecoach and uh, i just always enjoyed it um so i'm gonna go ahead and give that for my answer biggest takeaways mr madison what you've just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. Pretty self-explanatory. What were your biggest takeaways after watching the movie? Ooh, see, I don't know if it is. Why don't you give me your example, and I'll see if I can riff on that. Just what you take from the movie for the first time after watching it. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I'm actually, to be honest, I, I, I got to think too, because these categories, I was kind of rushing around and didn't write these things down. But, you know, I've got a pretty good memory of everything I just watched. I guess so. my biggest takeaway, as weird as it sounds, as generic maybe it sounds, or as or as comprehensive, is that when someone asks me what my favorite Tarantino film is, I've got to kind of throw another one in the in the conversation. Uh, this is the Tarantino film I didn't know I needed to see. And, uh, and because of how it starts with the script and then you get virtuoso acting performances from all the main players involved of which, I mean, I really need to, to, to big up Jennifer Jason Lima more, more than I have, because without her, uh, I actually think she's the glue that holds large portions of this, of this story together. Uh, as much as we think it's the it's the other ones, and she's the only female in in a room full of men, and um, does more than hold her own 
and not just as far as characterization goes, but as far as performance goes. Uh, I said early on, she was almost like being pushed out of the frame. I thought it was intentional, but as it goes on and we realize that she is the end boss in, in a manner of speaking, she, the performance knows exactly where it needs to be, when it needs to be. And maybe I'm saying, let's get Jennifer Jason Lee in some more stuff because, um, she nailed this. I, I I know I looked at her Wikipedia or IMDb page. There's lots of stuff coming up, but I mean, let's get her in some stuff that's like high profile because she nails this. Yeah, uh, I I argue she's one of the most or one of the more underrated actresses. Even though she's you know seasoned, she's been around for what forty years now. Her yeah. career span that long. I still feel that she's never gotten the love or attention that she's quite deserved. And she's deserving of. And, yeah, because um, when, when it popped on, on the example. screen, I was going, wasn't she a thing in the 90s? Like, have we, have we, I had to look up and right. see, make sure I knew which actress I was talking about. And I'm going, wow, I, I was completely unaware of her career still going. And, and she nails this. So, yeah. Yeah, she's great. And she's been in a lot of good movies over the last uh, five to six years or so. This, um, that, that Annihilation movie that came out with Natalie Portman a few years back was really good that she was also a part of. Um, and there's a third movie too that I've seen her in. I want to say, oh yeah, she played the mother of uh, Miles Teller's character in the film, The Spectacular Now, which I'm a huge fan of. As it's a teen movie, but it's 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 really good. Miles that's Teller. Like, that's and, like everything. Uh, everything sucks in Woodley. that one, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm sorry, what? Everything sucks. Like it's just it. Despite the name, isn't it like everything terrible in that film? No, 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 Was no. It not? Maybe I'm no. mistaken. It was something no. else. Um, no, it's okay. Uh, so my biggest takeaways from the movie, um, I mean, gosh, what more can be said that hasn't already been said? My, my biggest takeaway is still how well this movie holds up for me. Um, I've said numerous times, it had been a few years since I watched this uh, prior to yesterday. And honestly, I was expecting, hadn't seen um, Hollywood and and Inglorious Bastards uh, more recently. I don't know. I, I kind of thought maybe this movie would kind of go back down or go down in, in my like my list or whatever that I had in my head. And not think that it was as good as I remember it being. But to my surprise, it's just as good, if not a little bit better. Um, having this conversation uh, this afternoon with you talking about it definitely has given me a, a, a newfound respect for as well. Things that I'm going to, that, that you have pointed out that I'm going to take in and, you know, for when I go back and rewatch it, which probably be a lot sooner than the last rewatch. And um, Kurt Russell and Sam Jackson. I wish they did more work together because oh, I love the, I love their chemistry, especially. That's another reason why I love the stagecoach stuff so much. I just loved the chemistry between uh, Russell and Jackson. I think it's one of the film's strongest, strongest suits. When people talk about great characters in movies, John, John Ruth should get more, more um, consideration than he does. Um, Agreed. People, people, uh, it was surprised to come back and see this and go, why am I not hearing more about, about this, this performance in this film? This character is the kind of thing that should be. Because um, no one saw it. Uh, yeah, that's probably it. If, yeah, you're not wrong. I'm not right either because it definitely made money. And, it made money, and, but and, yeah. 
I mean, I don't people think did see this, but not originally, not not when it first came out. But this didn't people permeate. found this on Netflix. This didn't permeate the public consciousness at one moment, like Pulp right. Fiction did and Glorious right. Bastards did. Like no one, like Christoph Waltz. We were all talking about Christoph Waltz oh, when Glorious yes. Bastards came out. Like that. That's that that we were all talking about him and going, "This guy's a genius." That's um, a bingo. Yeah. <laughs> so you know. Um, we, we didn't we didn't get there with Kurt Russell because I think you're probably right. I think it was more of a staggered viewing of this. So I think people who've seen it probably go, oh, really good. But I think as a group, we didn't get there at the same time. And and I think that, that that's a deficit for the legacy right. of the film. It's all right. Um, Mulligan moment. If you had to do it all over again, would you make the same choices? Uh, I'm now... Be- yeah, I've I'm got to say one thing. You don't. Yeah. It's not. Nah, never mind. You go. What were we gonna say? Go on. I'll let you I'll go first. Say, three words and Channing Tatum. Get rid of it. Move it to the end. I don't want to know he's down there. Yeah, I I agree. That's and just like we talked about before when that was brought up, uh, that ruined a pretty good surprise. That yeah, you know, it, had you not seen it, watch it. Say you're not paying attention to the credits or whatnot. You know, yeah. it's definitely. I mean, the girl I was dating at the time, my, I was actually with my daughter's mother at the time, and I remember the look on her face when it happened. I was like, okay, so this yeah. is effective. Take his name off. Because she didn't see off. his name. She was holding because, a popcorn or something during the end. Because when that credits. happens, then I've got another level of surprise going, wait, wait, was his name in the credits? And I'd be right, like, do it right. if you can hold that. Then that becomes so, wait, that's, is that, who is that? Oh, his name was in the credits. Well, what? And you're going to go back and you're going, I can't find And it's just this extra level of something that, 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 oh, that could have, it's a great film. By no means does this ruin the film, but it was just one more moment you could have had that you didn't really fully get. Right, right. All right, and final thoughts on the film. Do you want to go first? Oh, I, I'm this really is your, thankful, this is your final moment. I'm really thankful that you approached uh, you approached the pod, you approached me to come on and have a go at, at, at this film. Uh, it wasn't something I was familiar with. Uh, I knew of it, but uh, as far as sitting down to watch, it probably wasn't on my short list. If I went this long about looking at it for some reason, I probably wasn't going to unless my, my hand was forced. And so I'm appreciative for that. And I think I'm walking away with more more of a thing for, for uh, more of appreciation for Kurt Russell as an actor than I was before going in. I've just, he's been in a lot of the movies I haven't seen very much of. Uh, he just seems nice. to be in my in my blind spots, and this has sort of opened my eyes to checking some, some some more things out. So yeah, great, that's great. Um, I love this movie. It's like I said, it still holds up. Um, dialogue's great. It's smart. It's brilliant. The 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 effects, you know, I, I love Nicotera's makeup effects in this film. Uh, the, the cinematography is just so goddamn glorious um the sound design's perfect this this movie it's 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 really is a, a, a magnificent piece of work that's mm-hmm. that, i'm just gonna end it like that it's, it is very it's up there is one of my favorite tarantino movies for a reason and I'm, I'm glad we did this i'm so glad that you agreed to come on um, i'm really thankful i'm really happy that you know to hear that you're a fan at knowing that you had not seen it this is 
your first time. So, yeah. <laughs> um, it had me yeah. thinking about it for a couple of days afterward. Well, literally, because it's been two days. But for me to, you know, usually it's kind of the sign of a, of a good film is if I turn it off and if I just leave it at the door, it didn't really do anything. But I've been sort of ruminating on it, just kind of, and not because I knew it was coming on the pod, just because it was, I was just sort of sitting there going, huh. And just the themes and the moments. Yeah, they're my favorite ones too. I'm yep. carrying them with me. And that's the sign of a good film, I think. I agree. That's, I say that all the time. All right, guys. So this film is sponsored by Wyoming Blizzards because you two might end up shacked up with various strangers who end up killing off each other as the time passes. Just remember, kids, when dealing with deadly blizzards, the stagecoach always loses. So stay the hell home. All that being said, this definitely gets the film effects seal of approval, and that'll bring things home for this edition of the show. One down, many more to follow. Next week, we will be back with now. Now that I'm not with Sean for the next couple of weeks, I originally we were going to do 2007's Death Wish from James Wan, but I'm thinking of calling an audible doing the social network because he was pussyfooting around on that movie didn't really want to talk about it or cover it on the show now that i'm doing the thing for the next few weeks i think next week we're gonna do the social network so check in tune in all that jazz guys um if you're following us on twitter that's where i post the most it's where i'm most active by, by just follow us on twitter at film effect pod and um i'll be um <clears throat> excuse me i'll be supplying updates throughout the week on what film will be talked about next week uh i know it's independence day week so i might throw an independence day film just i don't know kicking around some ideas so follow us on twitter to find out what the hell we are going to be covering for the show next monday but until then, we'll let you guys know that you can check out our previous episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, Pocket Cast, wherever else you enjoy your favorite shows. Um, and check us out on podpage.com slash the-film-effect-podcast. You can access all of our episodes and our direct, uh, as well as a direct link to our website, all one place. Check it out. Um. Yeah, sorry for that outro on the fly. And thank you so much for agreeing to be on this again. It's it's been a great few hours talking to you about this movie. And uh, like I said, I've always considered best film ever, like top tier. You guys uh, in this group that we've got, you guys are far and away top tier. And I'm not uh, just saying that. You're very very kind. We're just trying to figure it out as we go along as well. Uh, yeah, it, it's, 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 it's fun. It's a, it is fun. And it's fun. It's fun when you get a following. It's fun when you start engaging and it's yeah. fun when, uh, it's, I've been really lucky. A lot of pods have been asking, uh, Hey, do you have any time? Do you have any time? And if it's people who we, who we believe in, then the answer is always yes. And so it, it was, it, it was, a, it was a no brainer to come here and oh. hang out with you for, for, for a couple hours. Cause you, cause you, you guys do good stuff. I've really enjoyed it. If people have liked what they've heard from my dulcet Canadian tones, why not listen to me bounce around with about four British voices over at Best Film Ever Pod. <laughs> you can get us at Best Film Ever Pod on the Twitter. We also do Instagram and Facebook, but much similar to Film Effect, Twitter's really where you're going to get a hold of us. Join the conversation. It's a good time to be had by all. Yes, yes. Thank you. And, and thank you for plugging that too, because I was going <laughs> to ask you about that. So, gotcha. yeah, guys, uh, Best Film Ever. 
film effect, this little collab. It's been fun. We'll do it again sometime for sure. Um, oh, this definitely won't be the last time you hear of us together on the same podcast, guys. So, yeah. And thank you so much. Is there anything else you want to throw out there before we get out of here? Nope, nope. I think just the idea about uh, if the owner of the haberdashery is not in, I don't care if there's a blizzard. Keep on moving. There you go. All right, guys. Well, until next time, I've been Ed. This is Ann. It's been fun, but now it's done. Check you later. Get that girl.